And now, it's time for the show. This old dungeon. Good evening, Dungeoneers, and welcome to a special episode of this old dungeon. We've got a another wonderful one shot for you here. Uh, our uh, wonderful creative mind, Trevor Stamper, is with me today and uh, has uh, given up some of his time to talk about some of the stuff he's been working on and to just tell us all about the uh, the craft of making a book. Because I think if you follow uh, some of the small publishers, you will find very quickly that, that this is the man that's that's gone back to the the basics has has kind of gone back to the the actual art of making a book and 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 and, and, and uh, I guess you could say propelled it upward from there. Uh, so I'm just fascinated when I hear him talk about the about that craft. So uh, Trevor, welcome to the program. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good, Lou. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, when we start these things, we always got to ask the guests. You know, how did you get started in gaming? You know, what are some of your early memories and, and, and you know, what, what are some of the memories that you had along the way, some of the highlights of, of your, your, your gaming hobby to this point? Sure, absolutely. I, you know, I, 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 think, I think understanding where someone comes from, uh, you know, their, their gaming perspective as it is, is, is an important thing. So um, <clears throat> my uh, story starts actually with the military. I was a military brat, Air Force. Oh, wow. And um, uh, my father um, actually was a British citizen drafted into the American Air Force during Vietnam. And um, and so uh, he ended up serving, I think, 26 years uh, and retired as a U.S. citizen and everything. But during that time, we moved from base to base a lot. And uh, in the early 80s, um, we spent a couple of years at Kirtland Air Force Base in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so I would have been about <laughs> 10 at that point. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and so, uh, you know, I was living on an Air Force base. I was a 10-year-old kid. Um, and it was uh, early 80s. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of, uh, wasn't a lot of helicopter parenting or anything. You know, my dad was a great guy, don't get me wrong. But uh, basically, you know, I'd come home from school or where it'd be summer or something. And, and I'd have most of my time free. You know, I had a bicycle. I was on a base that was... <laughs> you know, basically, you know, had a chain link fence with razor wire around it. So I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> and, um, and so the kids in the neighborhood would just, you know, we'd get on our bikes and you'd run everywhere. Right. I'd, I'd, I'd ride all over that base. And um, there was, there were two kids across the street from me in base housing and they were playing um, first edition uh, advanced dungeons and dragons. And so they, you know, you'd get together and hang out. I'd watch this guy, drawing these crazy, you know, uh, dungeons and everything and stuff. And then he'd have a sleepover or something. We'd be out in a tent playing first edition D&D. Um, and, uh, and that was a really formative experience for me. Um, you know, I got, I got really interested in, in, in role-playing games and everything. And um, <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of money, but I had some lawnmower money. Uh, you know, I used to run around the lawnmower money. Yep, lawnmower money. Of course, in New Mexico, you didn't have that sweet uh, snow shoveling money that we had here in Indiana. But. That's right. There was there was no snow <laughs> shoveling, but uh, but you know what happened is is as a kid, uh, you know, on an Air Force base, you would um, rack up a clientele, and uh, and so you'd have like 10, 15 people that you would mow their lawn every week or every other week, depending on what they wanted, because of course base housing is inspected. And if your lawn gets too long, you get in trouble. <laughs> and, um, Sweet. and so, yeah, so, so, you know, during the summer and everything, I would be, uh, I'd be released 
to, uh, to, to run off and get my dad's lawnmower and I would drag it all over the base. And I think he bought me gasoline or, or there, there were gas tanks there that were left for me at the people's houses. They always provided the gas. And, and so I had lawnmower money. And so I, I ran off and, uh, to a KB toys, uh, there in the mall. And, um, uh, you know, they had, they had Dungeons and Dragons, but my friends had Dungeons and Dragons and you didn't need more than one copy. Right. I mean, all I had was yeah. a character sheet. That's all I cared about. So the very first role-playing game I picked up was uh, James Bond 007. Um, <clears throat> so I bought the box and I brought it home. And I was a huge Roger Moore, James Bond fan. You know, this is a 10-year-old. And uh, I, I need you to repeat that because I think you might be the only other person on the planet that prefers the Roger Moore of James Bond. Oh, um, you know, I actually, your guy, right? I like all the James Bonds, but at the time, certainly Roger Moore was a formative James Bond for my for my 10 year old psyche. Right. That was, I think, I think that must be because my, my dad, I, I, you know, he was a great parent usually, but I questioned him on this uh, and he's passed. <laughs> so I can't, you know, bring it up, but uh, he took us to like all the James Bond movies that came out, you know, yep. you know, here, you know, I'm like six years old and watching Octopussy and stuff like that. I don't know what the timeline, but, but the point is that, you know, so that was imprinted on my mind. And when I think James Bond, I think Roger Moore, and yeah. people are like, oh, no, Sean Connery, man, he's the best. I'm like, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> yeah. and, and I enjoy the Connery movies. Don't get me wrong. I like all the Bond movies. Um, and but uh, but Roger Moore was just like you said, he was he was in your consciousness at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Sean Connery had retired from the Bond uh, franchise, except for Never Say Never Again. Um, by the time I was my dad was taking me to the movies. And so and so on an Air Force base, there's a movie theater. And every, and you know, movies were like a buck. Right. And so, uh-huh. and, um, and I think we went to the movie just about every week during the summer um, and every other week or so during the winter, because there's a little bit of a slowdown in movie production in the winter. Um, and so we were, we went to the movies all the time and you're right. I saw every, every Roger Moore, the earliest I can remember is Octopussy off the top of my head. I can. Just I, I, I was still on that just as we were sitting here. And I think actually, um, for your eyes only i remember being a kid and seeing that that like uh water sequence opening kind of thing yeah with the credits there at the beginning but uh yeah uh, so i was i I was living the same life here (laughs) yeah i was i was a big bond fan and and so i bought james bond and i could not get the kids to play Uh, (laughs) they were you know they just that wasn't that wasn't what they were into and uh and so it sat on the shelf and fast forward a couple years from there you know that was my first introduction to role-playing um i would have been about 10 maybe 11 and then um and then you know we we pcs to what's called a permanent change of station we moved to uh, actually back to because i'd been there previously so my dad uh woodbridge air force base in england and um woodbridge is is an interesting air force base especially at this time uh, it's it's actually not an air force it's an air force base but it's not a it's not occupied by the americans anymore um, um, and, um, so I think the British have decommissioned it. Um, and so in the nineties, we withdrew from a lot of the air force bases because the cold war ended and it turns out I was there when that happened. But, um, but I ran into, um, you know, kids who were very clearly like-minded to me. And so there was a period of time where we were playing James Bond, uh, Indiana Jones, um, uh, the TSR Indiana Jones, this has been before the, uh, the West End games one. Um, uh, tons of Twilight 2000. I mean, <laughs> Twilight 2000 for Air Force kids at the time was just like, 
And we had, uh, what was interesting was they had a plethora of um, pilots maps. Pilots maps would, pilots would be provided with maps of the operational theater. And they were huge. They're like eight foot by eight foot square, high resolution topographic maps of like Europe. And we're yeah. playing Twilight 2000, which is set in Europe. And, uh, and so actually I have a stack of these still, these, these old pilot maps um, that the pilots used to be given when they would fly their mission sorties and everything and stuff. And we would use those to play the game and everything. So we played a lot of that. And then, um, and then, a, uh, you know, kids come and go on Air Force bases, right, all the time as parents change stations. Um, and then, you know, at a certain point, I wasn't playing D&D um, until a good friend of mine, probably my oldest friend now, a guy named Joel Phillips, um, who, by the way, you know, did the cover here to issue five of the smoking worm. So this is Joel. Um, so he showed up and the last two years I was there, he and I overlapped and we played D&D like you wouldn't believe. And it was just every weekend um, there was a gaming club on campus that was full of GIs called the Golden Dragons. Um, I still have my <laughs> membership card. And uh, and so for like five bucks, you'd become a member of the Golden Dragons and they would inhabit the uh, the high school on the weekends. <laughs> and they had like six or seven rooms they could play in. And so, um, yes, yeah, so they would set up these huge games and they'd clean up and put everything away and and everything and stuff. And so for the last two years, uh, we, I really got into playing at the Golden Dragons and stuff um, and uh, and everything. So that was, and that was where I was reintroduced to Dungeons and Dragons. It was a combination uh, at the time of first edition, second edition and basic. And so, you know, Joel had like the red box at home. We played first edition games at the Golden Dragons. That second edition was released in what, 86. So I picked up a used copy of the player's handbook, which I still have. And um, and we played with that. And so, you know, we just kind of played with anything you get your hands on. And the great thing about yeah, Air Force it... Air Force Base is they have the, called, something called the Stars and Stripes, which is um, which is a little bookstore. Every Air Force Base, I'm sure every military base has one. And you get your magazines there, you get your newspapers there, you get your books there. And they had a rotating stock of um, of science fiction and fantasy novels, you know, paperbacks that would come through. And so we would just voraciously consume the books the comics and the gaming material once the once the guy that ran it realized the gaming material was selling he had a lot of it and so um, that's awesome yeah Yeah. so you had kind of a built-in system there but but that was that's really the genesis of it Um, by the time I came back to the U.S. would have been 90 1990 I guess Um, you know I we, we we still I still continued to play Dungeons and Dragons quite a bit it had become my game of choice um and then uh, and then white wolf came out with with vampire and uh, and that just kind of took us by storm as a matter of fact i play tested um werewolf uh, before it came totally. out yeah yeah so if, if you ever find a first edition paperback version of werewolf because it wasn't a hardback for the first printing uh, my name's in there as a play tester that was my first play test credit um i can remember getting that in the mail and that was just insane um the, now, how did you because i mean that's that's an era before like the internet was super hot like it is. I mean, as I recall, that would have been like when it was first starting to snowball into something uh, as far as like, you know, Joe public. Um, How how did you get hooked up to do that? So white wolf was not, was not a huge company at the time. They pop up about 92 Uh, had no, had it been 91, 90 because I can distinctly remember 
um, there was a there was a gaming store in Albuquerque called War Games West. War Games West was a major retailer and a major wholesaler for everybody kind of west of the Mississippi. They're gone now, hmm. but um, but I was in this little town of Alamogordo when we came back from the U.S. We'd gone back to New Mexico to Alamogordo, Alamogordo New Mexico, and there was a pretty thriving gaming group, you know, kind of kind of subculture there, but no way to get a hold of books. And so I called up War Games West. I was I was placing orders with my buddies, you know. So I had a job. They had jobs. We were in high school. We had free capital, and we would put together weekly orders and basically order stuff in from War Games West. And eventually, my dad was like, "Well, why are you paying full price for all this stuff? You should call War Games West and just get a dealer's license." <laughs> and so he helped me. He was like, he, "I was like, okay, let's do that." And I, I don't know what we're talking about, but let's do that. And um, and so we called up and, you know, he got on and helped me explain, you know, hey, I'm in Alamogordo. Um, there's no stores, you know, but I know everybody who buys gaming material and I'm buying hundreds of dollars worth of gaming material off you weekly. And they gave me a wholesaler's license. And so for a while I was wholesale selling. Um, this, I would have been like 16 or 17 then. So this is like like door to door D&D sales then, right? I mean, like you're Except like. you didn't have to go door to door. You just show up at lunch. I'd show up at a <laughs> new catalog and say, what do you guys want? And, and, and about once a month or once every two months, you know, every other month or once every two weeks, we'd place like a four or $500 order for gaming material. Right. I mean, so that was how you were getting your fix. And now, did any of your, your teachers or any of the adults ever get like suspicious, think you're like doing drugs or uh, dealing drugs or something like that? No, we nope. never okay. had a problem. I never, <laughs> never, ever had a problem. Cause you know, there was a drug problem in New Mexico at the time. I mean, it's still there, I'm sure. But um, but we were the kids who just sat around and read books and laughed, right? I mean, as mm-hmm. far as a teacher's concerned, you just put them in a corner and leave them alone. You weren't on that radar, yeah. right? And and I'm just going to let that happen because I'm really more worried about the kids that are, you know, doing drugs in school or drinking or having sex in school. You know, I mean, that was that was actually the people that were the problem. Um, yeah. you know, so we were, we were not important. <laughs> so yeah. I just know yeah. that like in my school, anytime that, you know, there's kids that would bring in like uh, hostess Twinkies and stuff like that and sell them at a rate lower than the cafeteria was selling that stuff. They get in trouble. And, uh, well, yeah, exactly. You know, they're like, well, what, what are you doing over there? What's, what's all this money people are handing you and stuff like that. You know, you know, so, I, I will, I will tell you, there was one time, one time this is, so you wanted to highlight the last week I was in the United Kingdom. I was in England. Um, we were going to run through Castle Ravenloft in one weekend with the Golden Dragons. And we, we had like worked up to it. We had our characters, you know, we like got on a boat and we were going to there or whatever. This is the original first edition publishing mm-hmm. published Castle Ravenloft. The judge was, you know, D- DM was running us through this and everything. And he, he had it all set up and he was like, okay, next weekend, we're just going to take this module out. You know, it's Trevor's last weekend. We're going to play for like two days. We They got the Golden Demons had gotten permission to do a Saturday and a Sunday event. So we could do two days. And he's, they're like, you know, obviously you'll go home and spend the night somewhere else, but come back in the morning. And it was like the last hurrah. And at the very last minute, the the base chaplain got us shut down. And uh, Wait, and so, so literally. Satanic panic kind of thing? Yeah. Or? So literally, oh, really? the, the, the the base chapel was across the street from the high school, and um, and so the chaplain got wind that we were playing D and D, and there was a vampire, and and just completely shut down um, the Golden Dragons presence at the high school. 
at oh, that wow, weekend. Man. So I never got to play Ravenloft. I own it, but um, I never got to play it. I was, it was, it was a, it was a, a horribly depressing thing. Um, you know, yeah, I, I got to say, cause that's, that's my high, you know, if, if I had to pick one moment, you know, growing up playing role-playing games, I had a buddy that he, he actually usually ran basic D and D, but for whatever reason, he picked up Ravenloft, which was, you know, of course an advanced module. And uh, he's like, Lou, man, you know, I got this new module, uh, come over to my house and spend the weekend. All yeah. right. Didn't know what I was getting into. Oh, we, we just played it nonstop, took a few little breaks here and there, but, uh, that's one of my favorite, you know, going through that castle and, and not knowing what was coming, not knowing what it was about. I was just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> it did, it was a bad day. Uh, anyway, so I, I think we went over to my, to Joel's house and played gangbusters instead, um, <laughs> which was never a bad, a more time. savory game about, you know, crime and yeah, that's right. Crime and punish. And you never, you know, that game is set up for you to play the cops, the journalists, I think there's a dilettante in there or something. You're supposed to play the good guys, right? Well, not nobody. I, I was gonna say the original rules. I mean, it was also like the gangsters and uh, I'm trying to think but, of what else. There was, but go ahead. But, but nobody ever played anything other than a mob person, mm -hmm. right? We were all in the mafia. <laughs> we were, and it was just endless gun battles and you know, like bank robberies. That was it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and so uh, you know, that, that game was so good. It was so much fun. Um, you know, so, yeah. yeah. So, so those are the types of things that, that I, that I um, remember most fondly. I played, I, I, I kind of left Dungeons and Dragons style play alone for about a decade, played a lot of White Wolf. Um, we had several five or seven year campaigns. Um, we, wow. you know, so I had a really good group of, of guys. Um, and, and at this and, point, we're, we're talking more like into college. Is that right? So yeah, so this was this was I had graduated from high school at this point, and uh, and I was in college. So I was in New Mexico State University getting my bachelor's, um, and um, <clears throat> and so we were playing, we were playing, yeah, playing lots of vampire. And and those sessions were, gosh, they would be twelve to fifteen hour sessions, right? That was Jeez. like every weekend. <laughs> so that was probably forty five weekends a year. Um, that, that's a, that's a lot of vampire. So, so we played, we played a lot of empire and then, uh, and then I had kind of gotten that through my system by the end of the nineties. And I was, you know, thinking about coming back to Dungeons and Dragons. There was a couple things I wanted to clean up, you know, plot wise, you know, I, I built a game world years before then, and I was wanting to kind of follow up. And a lot of my players who'd played with me in high school were still at college with me and, um, and stuff. So we could, we could do that. And, um, I can remember thinking that I wasn't happy with second edition at the time. I wasn't happy with the mechanics. So I was contemplating the new standard edition of Rollmaster when, um, <clears throat> when third edition hit. And I bought third edition and I was just, and, and, you know, and I, I had a hardback of, uh, of the Rollmaster standard edition. I was very impressed with it. It was, you know, it's a very adaptable system and it's got just, it's just got a very beautiful advancement system right it's it's all i always based. get a little confused about role master sure. um was it correct me if i'm wrong was it by iron crown enterprises that's right it was you its core one? line that's right okay now was it similar to champions or was it a totally different thing totally different yep so okay so okay. so role master is um is a percentile system it's very similar 
it has an open-ended percentile system, open-ended at both ends. So you, if you roll like a 97 or higher, you re-roll your percentile and add to it. And you keep oh, wow. going as long as your die roll is in the like 95 or 97 or higher. So you can roll three, 400 points, you know, on a hit. And, and, or in the same thing with a fumble, you can, you roll down. If you get a three or four or whatever to zero or to one, you, you roll again and subtract that. And you can go down hundreds and hundreds of points until you stop rolling ones and threes. Right. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so it, it, it can get really brutal. Um, and then it has, uh, it has probably the most detailed critical system I've ever seen. Yeah. The, the only way to, crit thing. I, I remember yeah, hearing about that too. Yeah. The only way to play that critical system in a way that works is to photocopy off everybody's crit tables because every weapon had its own crit table. And, wow. um, and so, uh, you know, uh, that it was nice. Uh, you know, it, I mean, it was, I mean, it was a flexible system. It was good. Um, everything was skill-based, including hit points. So if you wanted to have lots of hit points, you just put points into body development. And uh, that was a skill, right? It was like, yeah, you can go to the gym and work out. That's not a problem. You wanted to be a spellcaster, you put points into those. And, and so it was a nice system, highly adaptable. It could You could really customize it if you really needed to. Um, so I was seriously considering that. And then third edition came out and the writing in it was so good. And the feat system was so kind of interesting and different. I was like, wow, we're just going to try this. And we never look back. So, yeah. So I've been playing. I mean, I have run some Vampire now and then after that. I've run Call of Cthulhu and several other games. Um, you know, uh, right now I'm running some James Bond, finally. Uh, because I found, <laughs> I ran into a group of guys who are like, they all own the James Bond game, but they never gotten to play it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you've owned this game for 40 years. Yeah, I've owned the game for 40 years. Never gotten to play it except for maybe once or twice. And so, uh, so it was nice to get through it. Um, but yeah, most of the time. And then, and then in the mid uh, kind of two thousands, uh, I moved to Ohio, I was finishing graduate school. And, um, and that's where we got involved with uh, dungeon crawl classics and everything, probably about 2008, maybe 10. I can't remember now. Um, I mean, that's that's real early on then. I mean, were they even into their own system so at that point? I think they were in playtesting. No, I think they were in playtesting in 10 or 9 and 10. And um, and my buddy Brian had had uh, run. He had played in a module at Gen Con. Um, and so he'd gone to Gen Con and he'd played, just tried out the game and really liked it. And he bought the rule book. And then we, you know, we were playing D&D &D pretty heavy. And then I guess it was probably about, 2015 that we actually got into playing DCC regularly. He ran a game for us and we had a lull in a campaign and, um, and I really appreciated the flexibility and the craziness. It was, <laughs> it, it, you know, I'm not a big gonzo player, but I do like that things are scalable. Right. And I, and, and yeah. things, when they go bad, they can go really bad or they can go really good. And, and that's a really nice feature to have in a system. I love so, the, just the aesthetic of magic in that game that it's, you know, it's this uh, almost like nuclear option, like, Oh yeah, the, the, the wizard can throw something, but you know, uh, he, he can throw it low and then he gets hurt or he can throw it really high and then we get hurt. You know, it's and, true. You know, it's... The one thing that sold me on dungeon crawl classics was the saving throw target number. So my critical problem with third edition was always that the target number to save against a spell was not based on the caster's ability. It was based on the spell. 
right? And I'm like, well, why is a first level spell cast by a 20th level caster just only so good as a first level spell? Yeah. That caster's been casting that spell potentially for years, decades, maybe even centuries, right? He should be pretty good at it. And um, and so very early on, we'd house ruled that it was caster level instead of spell level plus, you know, and uh, and, and everything is a target number. And, um, and so that that completely changed the game and dcc kind of had that built in that it would you know if you ever had to make a spell check or a, a saving throw against a spell it was always based on what the actual caster had rolled and i'm like ah oh, i'm sold we're done you know <laughs> how effective you do this is how effective it is to save against it that's a that's a brilliant simplification of the system sure yeah so, um yeah so that's my so background you're, you're getting into dcc at, at what point uh I mean, because you've got you've got uh, writing credits in a lot of different areas um, as far as RPG stuff goes, you know, particularly. Um, at what point are you starting to write for DCC? I mean, are, are you one of the guys that got into the, the first couple uh, Gong Far Farmer's Almanacs or? So I've um, never written for a Gong Farmer. Um, oh, OK. Uh, that was uh, not something I did write some third edition material for EN World Journal, which was published by Goodman Games. That would have been about 2003. Oh. Um, and, and it, you know, it, from the beginning, or at least from the time I was about 15, you know, we would write down house rules and we, I mean, I have boxes of notes, right? <laughs> boxes of notes, um, on things that we, you know, we'd worked on new classes, new things, whatever it was. And, um, and I'd always wanted to codify my game world, write it down and do a, Kind of a nice treatment like you'd see with Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms or something. And so um, Brian Gilkison, the guy who got us into DCC and I, we were, excuse me, we were up at GaryCon 2019, 2018 maybe. Would have been, yeah, 19, the year before the pandemic started. And uh, we were playing games. We were playing DCC and having a good time and everything. And, and, he grabbed the character at random on, on a table, you know, because you go to a convention and one of the things that you see is big stacks of random character sheets. Um, thank you, Purple Sorcerer, um, <laughs> for, you know, the, for players to play. And so he grabbed a random character and it the, the, the character was a wizard and he had a patron. And, um, and so I think he, I think it was already pre-gen for him that this was a, he was patroned to Cthulhu, which is possible in the DCC rules, but there's no rules for it, right? So it's it's mm -hmm. there, you know it's a thing, but no, but Goodman had never published on it. And at the end of the game, you know, Brian, Brian and I were sitting there playing this adventure, I think, if I remember correctly, we were coming up with ideas for how his character should be, what would the, what would the spells be, what would patron bond or invoke patron look like and stuff like this. And, um, at the end of it, Brian and I got to talking and we were like, well, wow, we should just, we should just publish this, right? I mean, Brian knew, I didn't at the time, that there was a license that you could get uh, through Goodman to publish stuff, um, you know. And I was at a point where I'd done a lot of professional writing. Um, so I knew the writing process pretty well. And, you know, I loved um, making things. As a matter of fact, you know, I mean, my high school <laughs> career was, was spent predominantly in two places, shop class and graphic design. Um, I took every ounce of shop I could get, right? If, if there were 
my, I think my sophomore year, I was in the shop class six hours a day. Right? <laughs> I had like, you know, like directed study upon directed study upon directed study. And then you, I would you go can't to- see it, folks, but he does have all his fingers. I, I'm counting them as we're <laughs> I talking. Do, I do. I have all my fingers and I have some crazy tales about wood flying <laughs> everywhere. Um, so anyway, so I learned, you know, I was learning woodworking. I was just passionately interested in woodworking uh, and it continues to this day. You can't see it, but the desk I'm leaning on is, is, a, is it something I made. You know, the bookshelf that holds all the lighting rigs and the, you know, and everything. That's a, that's a, that's a thing that I made, you know, the, Sweet, man. it takes me a long time to do things because usually I'm custom building something to go with it. Right. I mean, I'm sure you wanted to get to talking about book binding and um, in the last four or three or four weeks, I've been working on a new workbench so I can deploy some new equipment and, <laughs> and the workbench is just made from scratch. Right. It's just, that's just how it is. And, um, and so, so I spent most of my time in high school in, in graphic design and in woodworking and graphic design. What did we do? Well, we made D and D character sheets, right? That was, <laughs> you had an Apple too. Yeah. You could build anything you wanted and he didn't care what you printed. More did right? you. We had an, we had an AB Dick 900 offset printer. We had, you know, run of the run of the building. We could use as many resources as we wanted. And uh, I guarantee you, I still have some of those character sheets sitting around because we patterned them and we had like thousands of these things. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time loving making things, you know, that's just, that's just who I am. And, um, and once Brian and I got to talking about it and, you know, decisions were made that I was going to kind of be the primary on this and, and everything. And we ended up publishing from there. Um, since then, have I published for anybody else? No. Um, it's not that I'm not interested in it, but it, it comes down to a matter of time. Um, you know, I've only got so many time, so much time and I only have, and I have plenty of projects, right? There's, there's no end to the number of projects that I'm interested in working on. And so um, I said, I'd like to write for somebody else, but when it comes down to it, it's just, it's, you know, I've had several people reach out to me and say, could you write something for us? Um, a lot of people like the stuff we've written. Um, and, and I'm like, I, it just, it's never at the right time where I can just write something and hand it off. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And these days, by the time I'm done writing something, I've spent so much time on it. I just want to see it finished. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Have that final ability to, to, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, the, one of the most enjoyable things I like doing in blind visionary publications, uh, which is my imprint, um, is, um, is working with artists and and adding the art layer to to the to the written word and making those work together right um and so yeah i'm sorry you were going to ask me a question well i was just going to ask like as far as blind visionary uh, publications goes um you and brian um do you guys just collaborate on the the smoking worm it's a good question there are three of us who came up with the idea of tales from the smoking worm um, okay. I haven't mentioned John yet, but John Olszewski is a friend um, who I met in college in New Mexico, um, who came to Ohio as well and ended up working, oddly enough, with my wife um, and everything at the US EPA. So John and I have been gaming buddies for 20 years and, uh, and everything. And, and, um, and I've gamed with John, uh, you know, well, actually, I was, I was gaming with John the day I met Brian. So the three of us have always have gamed together quite a bit. 
And uh, once Brian and I came back, we we kind of mentioned it to John. You know, we talked with the gaming group. Hey, we're interested in doing this. We're going to go ahead and write these up and and work on them and everything and stuff. And John was interested, as I kind of figured he would be, because he's always worked with me on developing the background material for my game world and editing things and writing things. And he has a deep interest in that. And so so if you look at early issues of The Smoking Worm, um, we share credits on a lot of things. Um, uh, since then, John hasn't had much time to work on it. So he his name has fallen off of the credits uh, for, you know, writing or editing or whatever. And Brian has stayed on. Um, when we started, we realized very quickly that it needed to be its own company. And for a while, I just ran it as a sole proprietorship. Brian wasn't interested in running it like that. I mean, he wasn't interested in being like a partnership um, and everything. And so, um, you know, Brian and John got credit and everything and, and donated a lot of their time. And, uh, and, and, and then subsequently Brian got, um, who had put in a lot more time than, than anybody else other than me, you know, I paid him for his work. Um, and so eventually we incorporated and we, we brought it under the mantle of blind visionary publications and, um, and everything. So, and it's still essentially, I'm not, you know, I'm technically the CEO. Um, I'm not sure, quite sure what CEOs do, except what I do, <laughs> make sure that everything gets done. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how it works. And then if anybody does work for us, um, they're paid for it. Right. So we, we, we have a contract and work order system, people contract with us. Um, so it's contract for higher work and then, uh, and then work orders are individual kind of agreements, uh, under sitting underneath that overarching legal agreement of the relationship. And so, yeah. That's that's kind of how that works. So, so when we look at some of the things you've made, like the the character portfolios and the uh, the monographs, um, is is that stuff where it's like you're just this is the project I want to do and I'm going to do it, or are you still kind of working with them about like you know does this fit with our brand or? So that's a good question. Um, you know, corporations often have something called an advisory committee. And I haven't formalized it, but we basically have, um, you know, an informal advisory committee, which, rep, you know, is John, uh, Brian, and um, and our designer, <laughs> my daughter Caitlin Stamper, who is a professional graphic designer. That's she's graduated from college, and that's what she does for a living. And she helps me out. Um, awesome. You know, keeps me keeps me straight on all those rules that you're supposed to follow <laughs> to be a graphic designer. And she's really good at it. So that was ultimately, you know, the job that I wanted to get when I went to college and I got segued into science and that's a whole nother story, but, you know, uh, it's nice now uh, in this second career to kind of come back to that <laughs> um, and stuff. So Caitlin has been instrumental in getting things done and making them look good and, um, and, uh, and working with all those new darn, you know, fangled software pieces <laughs> and stuff. Things like Photoshop and everything that I'm not quite, I'm learning, I'm learning how to do them. It's very baby steps for me, but, um, you know, InDesign's not so bad. Um, I've been working with InDesign since it was Aldous PageMaker 1.0. Uh, oh, wow. That was, that was what I was doing in that graphic design class was on, on an Aldous PageMaker software platform. We were doing the, that first character sheet. Uh, so, so the InDesign's been, you know, I've been, I've used it for 30, 40 years now. Um, 
and and everything. So yeah, you know, sometimes, so we sit down, I haven't had a meeting recently, but we sit down and, and I often say, hey, I'd like to buy this, or I'd like to do this, or I'd like to have someone, the monographs so far, uh, so we have two publications, two primary publications, Tales from the Smoking Worm, which is kind of a dragon-esque, you know, grab bag, usually has between seven and nine articles in it. Um, and that's one project, right? And and so Brian and John are most heavily involved with that. <coughs> Excuse me. We also have the um, Smoking Worm monograph. And the point of a monograph, um, and I think of it in terms of a scientific monograph, is to delve deeply into one topic. So, but that seems odd because the first two things we published were adventures. But if you think about it, we did a lot of new things on those adventures. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen them in, in the flesh. Um, I know the last time we were talking, um, I think it was Hanging Gardens was coming out and you were yeah. showing me the cards and the, the pocket in the back and uh, just blowing me away with, with all the kind of the ingenuity of, of, you know, how can you make a game adventure run quickly right out of the box? for a game master. Uh, so, uh, I mean, why don't you tell the folks about it because they need to, I mean, this is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. So the idea of these first two modules, the first one was um, For Whom the Bell Trolls. And it came out in coordination with issue four of Tales from the Smoking Worm, um, which has a huge article on playing trolls as characters, right? <laughs> so we went deep into Swedish and Nor uh, you know, Norwegian kind of folklore, pulled together all this mythological like and, and folklore traditions and, and publications and everything and did a deep dive into trolls. Um, and at the same time, I was working with somebody, Jose Luis Cardoso, right? And so uh, Jose and I were talking about things that he could write. He's, he's a really good writer and he's really quick and and he's got a really good sense of place and you know so his his writing can be very terse but really evocative and it doesn't have a lot of detail in it that's perfect and so i said well i need a little starting adventure for these trolls do you want to write something it needs to be like a fairy tale and so he wrote for whom the bell trolls and um and we edited it and everything and um and then i did all the art for it in terms of the maps and then we hired um, John Cobb. And John Cobb is, um, he is a, a, an illustrator from the 90s uh, in role-playing games. He was a major illustrator for White Wolf. Okay. And then he kind of fell out of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he kind of fell out of um, doing role-playing game art and he was doing other things. And, um, and I was, I've always been a huge, huge fan of John's work. And um, and I discovered him where he was, you know, he was down in Louisville. So he wasn't far from us. And I was like, and I saw that he was doing art still. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to reach out to him and, and, and just ask if he's willing to do more art. Cause he hasn't, as far as I know, done any role-playing art in over a decade. And I reached out to him and explained the project. And I said, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a new publisher and, and I need these cards. Right. And I, what I want you to do is we're going to put these on tarot size cards and their adversary cards. So they have the picture of the individual on one side and they have their stat block on the back. And this allows you to show people what people look like. Here's what your adversary looks like. Um, but it also allows you to just place it in front of you and you don't even have to have the book open. You can run the entire encounter from that card. That card <laughs> and um, John came back and he was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. 
Um, and we negotiated and worked out a price and, and everything. And I worked out what, what needed to be done. And, um, and so while we were working on this, I've always felt that, and I don't, I, I don't want this to sound like I'm criticizing other adventure writers, right? People write adventures. There's tons of them. There's thousands of them, right? Um, and they have kind of a nice format and everything. And they're usually readable. They have their own language, right? Mm -hmm. We have our own jargon. All of this is good. But, but one of the things that's always annoyed me, and this is kind of an odd critique, is the artwork is in the book meant for the judge, but not the players, right? And I don't know what the purpose of that artwork is. And I kind of believe in functionalism. Mm -hmm. And um, and so some early modules that TSR did in, in the 70s had explored putting art. Yeah, yeah Tomb of Horrors, uh, um, Expedition yeah. of Barrier Peaks and stuff like this had explored the idea of putting a separate art packet out so you could show people now for two horrors and stuff this was critical because like they were literally showing you the traps uh -huh. and you had to figure out <laughs> from that illustration where things where the traps were um and i was like but i want to be able to show people what people look like and important scenes and stuff and i don't want to put that in a booklet because the thing i don't like about booklets is if this is our booklet and i show you this image well you can also see the image on the back right <laughs> and 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 so so I'm like, so, so, or, or it shows you the NPC's you know, name, you know, it shows you the picture yeah. and then underneath and, it has the werewolf stats. You're like, Oh, it's a werewolf. He's a werewolf. Don't trust him. It's a werewolf. <laughs> That's right. So or you do that so clumsy thing. That's the other that thing. You, you get the book and you got like mangle it. So you got like part of it covered and you're holding it over the screen. Yeah, no man. Cards are brilliant. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times I put a post-it on an image and said, I want you to ignore the fact that they're <laughs> fighting the dragon. This is what the dragon looks like. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, what I really want are like Hollywood headshots. Right. I, I want, I want, mm -hmm. this is what this person, this character looks like in, in a, in a comic book that would be called a model sheet. Right. And as a matter of fact, at the very end of the limited edition of smoking worm, ta uh, tales from the smoking worm number three, we have a model sheet for one of the re re reoccurring characters that shows up in the book and on the covers. Um, to show you what a, what a model sheet looks like. And then that is an artistic tool that I can hand to any artist and say, you're going to need to draw this guy and this is what he looks like, mm -hmm. right? And, and so there was a lot of thought going on about how could we best prepare the module so the judge gets everything they need really importantly and the players get everything they need and they don't have to tear the book apart to do that. And at the same time, I was actually running um, that we were we were building this module this venture. I was running G1, and G1 is a very interesting module. This is against the giants, the steading of the hill uh, giants, right? Steading of the hill giants, right? Um, and uh, and everything. I was running it in DCC, so I wasn't too concerned about stat blocks. <laughs> I would just use DCC equivalents. But one of the things that I noticed that was really really annoying about G1, and it's not just G1, but this was the thing I was running at the time, was he would, you know, there would be like, there are 12 lightning spears, right? And, and, and I would be like, okay, where are the 12 lightning spears? I have a note on them. But when I need to go back and, and find them critically at a critical moment, I can't find them in the text oh, yeah. because the text is so dense because it's so poorly laid out, right? 
mm-hmm. that it isn't highlighting the things I need to stand for in the heat of the moment when I need to tell a player what they're doing, what's happening, I would just have to make it up. Um, and so that to me is a frustration that I thought I would solve. And well, so, you know, as a writer and, and granted, I'm not much of a writer, but you know, I've got a few publications under my belt in, and that as a writer has always gotten to me too, is when I'm typing up something in an adventure, okay, there's this, you know, special effect this that's going on in this place, or there's, you know, a magic item or whatever. H- how do you communicate that, you know, in a, in a concise way each time so that it's easy to find? Do you bold it? Do you underline it? Do you italicize it? Do you do all three? Do you, you know, so yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting you, man. What, how do you deal with this, right? And, and not only that, but you don't want to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Nine take times, a bullet space right because that's a waste of, that's a waste of space so how do you elegantly solve this problem and, uh, and 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 as we were going through for whom the bell trolls i was like this problem crops up many times this is the first time i'd laid out a module i'd never done it before and i'm like this problem comes up on all these different pages and you want to have a nice layout, something where you can open it. And that's most of your work. You don't have to flip through five pages. And my books are not big, right? They're five inches wide by eight inches tall. They need to be laid out very, very carefully mm-hmm. in order for that to work. And you'd really like to have any maps directly associated with that page. There's a couple ways you can do this. One of the things that we decided to do was draw attention to the fact when things needed to be repeated or might be important at a later scene, right? Um, I'll give you an example. There is a magic rock in For Whom the Bell Trolls. Now, it's covered on one page, but it's important on two or three scenes, right? So it's important in two or three different places, but I'm not going to replicate it. Um, I'm going to put it in one spot. And the two, you know, the, the, the titular bell that the trolls are going to steal, right? Um, is also likewise detailed in one spot, but also very important at the end of the module. So I need it at the beginning and I need it at the end, right? And you don't want to repeat it. So how do you solve that problem? Well, it turns out if you do a little research, um, scribes solve this problem in the 12th century. <laughs> Those 12th right? century scribes, they such ahead of time. 12th century time, scribes, maybe. the head of their times for role-playing games, they solved this problem. And, and so, um, so we did a test that would have been in smoking worm number three, um, using the, the there's a piece of punctuation called a manicule and it, and you, you know, it, cause you've seen it. It's just a finger pointing okay. on a hand. You, you see it like, uh, the post office uses it. If you've ever gotten mail forwarded to you, there's a manicule that's used to highlight the new address. <laughs> right. And I was like, you know, what if. I had, if you think about it, if you're looking at the hand from this direction, right, this direction, um, this hand is could be holding something. So he's like, got his fingers out for hand? those of you listening. <laughs> he's got his, yeah, he's got his fingers Palm out. Towards he's you. Pointing his finger, yeah. finger pointing like, like a gun, gun. <laughs> right? And so you could use these three fingers to hold something visually in the manicule, um, because what the manicule will do is it would often point to the line that was important and then have a scribble next to it, right? And, and so um, I was like, well, we could just point to the different section of the damn book, right? Mm-hmm. So if you open up Hangman's Garden or For Whom the Bell Trolls, you will find manicules with little cards and it will say, you know, A3. 
And if you go to A3, and that, 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 that manicule might be in A1. If you go to A3, it'll point to it and say A1. And you know those two things are connected, right? Yeah. So as a judge, I don't have to think about where the hell is the bell. <laughs> I know because I thoughtfully put it there for them that it's in section A1. And so there was a lot of deep thinking about design and layout that went into those two adventures. And they both they both built on each other. Uh, we did different things in both um, and, and repeated the same thing to see if we were happy with it still. And so that's why those are in the monograph series. The later monographs will not be adventures. Um, they will be deep dives into specific topics. Um, I have a monograph coming out sometime this year, potentially. I don't know if I'll get to it this year, but I'm hoping I will, called The Poison Gar uh, uh, Gardens of Kelebesh Moog. And um, if you have ever watched, looked at a Tales from the Smoking Worm, actually, here's issue five. There's a guy here with a snail head. <laughs> yeah. right, like a slug head that's Kelebish Moog and as a matter of fact he's standing in the doorway of his herbalist shop and and this is a street it's a real street in Greece that's based off of something called a Miracle's Last Ride that was in the DMG number one all the Tales from the Smoking Worm covers and this is something nobody else has caught it onto except the people who produce it all of the Tales from the Smoking Worm one uh, covers feature that street that hmm. was originally written or drawn by um, <clears throat> one of the first edition uh, TSR artists, right? This this, this famous uh, street. It's a Trampier piece, if I remember okay. correctly. And, uh, and, and Goodman then parodied or gave an homage to it in the rulebook for the DCC role-playing game. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and then wrote, Emeritus was framed, in honor of it as well, a module. And so we were like, you know, this is where the name Tales from the Smoking Worm comes from, is Brian's idea. If you look at it, the original Emeritus is framed has something called, I think it's called the Green Garden or something. It, it's, it's, got a, it's got a very specific hanging sign with a pub. And then in the homage piece that Goodman put out, there is something called the Green Dragon, right? Because Trampier wrote Wormy the green dragon <laughs> and if you look at the sign there's a worm there's wormy in the sign right and so brian was like we should call this tales from the smoking worm because wormy always smoked right he smoked cigars mm -hmm. and it'll be an homage to an homage to an original and i was like well if we're going to do that we, we looked at that we, we delved into the history on this piece of art and we we're like well this is actually a real street in greece in the town of rhodes and and he literally, he Trampier must have been there, must have seen a photograph of it, but the you know, he perfectly reproduces that street. So we used the magic of Google, <laughs> and uh, and I went and took three or four hundred perspective screenshots of this street, and that's what the artists get whenever they're working on a cover to Smoking Worm, they're actually given. The, this folio that is like, fantastic okay, here's what's here's what's in the issue you need to show that on, on this street, street because <laughs> this this is the tales for the smoking worm here's the smoking worm it's on this street and everything every issue every cover must show you the street at some level we broke the rule seemingly with issue four 
in this the, one where things are coming down from the sky, isn't it? That's right. Well, what they're not, they're not coming down from the sky. The dwarf character is being pulled up outside of the window, but this is an inside illustration looking at inside oh, okay, of the smoking okay. room, and you can see the street through the window. So we didn't technically break the rule. We gave you a different vantage point. <laughs> And um, very Hitchcock. So, so those interview. are the types of. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so so every issue has a different viewpoint of this street, um, and it's the real street. And and the Poison Garden of Calabash Moog is 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 built off of the real buildings that are. I mean, have 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 to have been there for centuries, right? These ancient buildings sitting right next to this huge castle, because there's a castle just down the street. From the Tales from the Smoking Room, from the original, it, this the street leads to a castle, and um, and everything. So, <laughs> so when we were working on Tales from the Smoking Worm, a lot of that goes into it. There's a lot of um, hidden things in the book if you if you really look. That's the best. And then and then the Smoking Worm is about how do you do something? It's either a deep dive into a topic. How do we really think about? you know, herbalism, which is what Poison Gardens of Kelebesh Moog is about, or how do I go about building a better module, right? How do I make it so the judge gets what they need, so the players get that they need, they all, they both get to enjoy the art, right? And they get to enjoy it in a way that is not so cost prohibitive that I can't produce it. Mm -hmm. So, so those were the explorations. And, and how do we create a language that shorthands things for the judge so that you've read this once, but you don't quite remember. And it's day four of Gary Con, and your brain's kind of fried <laughs> and you need to get up and run this. And so um, Hangman's Garden was like that. You know, we did several things for Hangman's Garden, two sets of cards. So in environment cards, which are a location card, plus the adversary cards, um, they both have, like you said, pockets because you don't want to lose those cards. That's the that's the downside of the card, right? So, mm -hmm. the 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 actual illustration packet can go inside the module and it just fits, and you're probably not going to lose it. But the um, the cards much easier to lose, and so we designed custom designed sleeves, and the reason we custom designed sleeves was because I looked up the price of sleeves to put them in there, and while I could get library card sleeves pretty cheap. It didn't sound too sexy, and um, and um, and and so um, custom envelopes, custom sleeves to fit those cards were it was going to cost more to buy a sleeve like the sleeves that we needed than it was to buy the book. Jeez, so more to print the sleeve than the book, and I was like, ah, oh, that's too expensive. And then I discovered, I figured out that I could purchase a cricket. And a cricket is a home hobby, you know, um, scrapbookers use these things, mm -hmm. right? Or people who die are doing stickers for money. Well, I guess die it's not technically things. die cutting, but it can form cut things and it can, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's essentially, it is, yeah, it, it's it's basically, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a computerized knife, right? <laughs> That's what it is. And you can direct it from your computer. And so I bought one of these, they're about $400, but that was a third of the price of the sleeves that I was going to need. And so I'm like, so that's a bargain. So we just then bought the car color cardstock I wanted and um, and everything. And I did the foil stamping myself because I'd purchased the machinery to do that. And we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And, you know, we we custom foil stamped and, with a smoking worm logo and then hand every one of those sleeves, I, I, I kid you not, is hand 
made by me at this table. <laughs> um, you know, I, I did um, I did hire my daughter to sit there and feed sheets of cardstock through it, but because it takes about three hours to run about 500 sheets of cardstock through one of these machines um, to, to cut the cards. And then you've got to stamp the cards and then you have to hand glue the cards. So Labor in the end, it's sure. about... It's about 10 minutes of work per sleeve by the time you're done when you work it out. And you're like, you know, okay, so it's a couple days time, but you know what? You can do it. You can cut the things while you're watching a movie because the cricket sits on my, you know, on the mm. coffee table and you just sit there and, and run things and, um, and, you know, and, and you're paying yourself for your labor. So I'm reducing my overhead in order to not have to charge exorbitant fees to everybody else and what it allows me to do is to pay myself quote unquote right for my time and um and stuff so now, i think i got this story right but uh please correct me and tell it the correct way if you will uh someone had reviewed i, I want to say it was maybe uh for whom the bell trolls and, and they like didn't understand what you had done there oh correct? the hangman's garden oh, it was hangman's garden okay. no no it was Hangman's Garden, yeah. Okay. So I, I have this great review of <laughs> Hangman's Garden on uh, YouTube, and it's great until you get to the very end, and the guy's like, and I don't know what this thing is on the back inside <laughs> of the book, but and I'm like, it's it's a sleeve. You put the cards in it, right? I mean, like, I have a video that shows you how to <laughs> do it. The only way you could have got... The only way you could have gotten it is through two means. You could have bought it from Goodman, in which case the video on how to put your cards in the sleeve is on the website. Or you bought it from me, in which case I sent it to every backer, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you know, I'm like, I'm like, it was just, yeah, just cracks me up because you know you're bending over backwards to put this cool little feature in this thing, and and to me, you know, it's kind of a no brainer. Oh, I got these cards. Oh, hey, there's this thing that's card shaped, you know. <laughs> but it's, yeah. oh man, I, I I can imagine how that felt. Like, just come on, guy, come on, just like, look at the video. How, easy, how hard is this? So, but that tells you that invention is not common uh -huh. in role-playing games for sure right there are thousands of modules they're they're written in a very formulaic way i'm not talking about the verbiage i'm talking about how they're presented mm -hmm. and even though we know it's a detriment right we don't seek to improve it and they're published in such a way that very few things get all of the cool stuff that is easily producible that makes the experience better mm -hmm. when uh dieter zimmerman wrote the hangman's garden and i published it um and the reason we published it is it was the module that brian gilkison played at gen con the first time and it had never been produced so it, he would have he would have played it the first year that dieter ran it at gen con mm -hmm. and then dieter ran this module for 10 years and nobody ever picked it up and he never self-published it which is a shame because it's a great module. And um, and so when I was talking to Dieter about it, he's like, well, I got this thing called Hangman's Garden. And he sent it to me. And I said, yeah, well, and I mentioned it to Brian. I'm like, Dieter wants us, you know, he sent us this, this adventure called Hangman's Garden. And Brian's like, oh, that's the one that got us into DCC. <laughs> the Hangman's Garden is the reason why the Tales from the Smoking Worm exists. And I'm like, so we need to publish this and um, and everything. But yeah, so that has in it a ton of, thoughtful, hopefully thoughtful, elegant solutions to problems 
when Dieter ran with the prototypes, so all of the original prototypes that came through last August at Gen Con, he was super happy about it. He told me afterward, he was like, you know, he's like, I was able to basically run that module without looking at the book, right? Between the cards and everything else, you know, we made a deck of cards called a crime and guilt deck because everybody's accused of a crime. And there's a whole series of about 20 tables <laughs> that you have to have players roll on. It's the first thing they do in the game. And so you think about it this way. I've got six to eight players at a convention. Most of them have never played DCC before. And the first thing I do is say, okay, everybody roll me a D4. Okay. And then I'm like, okay, Bob, Bob, you were uh, accused of, you know, horse mutilation and you're really guilty. Okay. And, and you, Sally, you were accused of stealing something and you're innocent. And, you know, and, and so that that just kind of spoils that opening. Mm -hmm. First of all, everybody else knows what you've been accused of and what you've done wrong and whether you've done it wrong or not. Or you got to pull people off one at a time. And then the game so that takes like 20 minutes right there. Yeah. Right. It, it's just, it just it just slows it down to a crawl. So we put together a deck of cards, poker sized cards, and Dieter was able to open those up, shuffle them and go boom, 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 boom. Or here you just pick. Tell me what you are. This is this is your crime. You flip it over and you say, there's a table there, roll a D4. It'll tell you whether or not you're guilty or what you've been accused of. Okay, make a note on your characters, hand me those cards back, and I put them away. And in four minutes, we've solved the problem that was taking 20, right? And, and it's a reusable solution that has infinite possibilities because I'm going to randomly play them out Me to too. a new table the next time I run this. And as you know, many Dungeon Crawl Classics people actually run the same module dozens of times mm -hmm. so it's it's great because every time the judge runs it he's got a new group of people but he probably only has a set of you know random characters that he's printed and he just reprints those for that right and so every character is different every time now because he's randomized what they're guilty of and what they did so that was a that's a solution to that problem. And then having the stat block on the back of the card, you can hold up the card and say, you see this, right? I can describe it to you if you'd like, but this is what you see. This is what the in, in this is what the space is like. I'm, you know, he has a short verbiage for that and uh, and everything. And so those are those are cool ways to make the game more interactive. Now they add stuff and they cost more money, right? Mm -hmm. So Hangman's Garden is not, it's not a mega module. It's only got like seven or eight locations, uh, but it's got three different sets of cards in it, right? Uh, if you buy the, the additional crime and guilt deck, right? And it, and it is a fully, it's a fully functional adventure. It's good for about four hours of play and it's got great repeatability. Um, we're working on one now that will have to be a box set. Um, it'll be a box, it'll be a game, you know, it'll be a, it'll be an, uh, it's, it's actually a location. I don't really think of it as an adventure because it doesn't, doesn't inherently come with a plot. Um, and so it's a location and there's a lot going on in this location. Um, in order to make a complex situation clear, you need to have a lot of visual representation and a lot of careful explanation to the judge that the judge can see at a glance mm -hmm. when they need to see it. And so, um, so this one is called um, House of the Petrified Frog. I actually wrote it over two years ago. I playtested it several times. Um, and it adds in, it's supposed to be kind of, um, it's like, a, think of it as like a, an homage to the Tomb of Horrors without being the Tomb of Horrors. 
Um, and so one of the things that we really wanted to do was kind of unnerve the players. We wanted them <laughs> to feel like they didn't know everything that was going on in the space. Um, you know, and, and so what we did was we again took a deck of cards and we we gave the descriptions, but then at the same time, every time we give a description, we we take like six or seven cards and we hand them out to the players. And that's one piece of information that a player picks up that they may or may not tell anybody else. So like you mean like like Sarah is getting the smell of the room and John notices that's this right. book over here right. and, and and so yeah. and so I give a description to the room and then I hand out the card. And that's the extra, and I'm like, so in, in addition to that, like, let, let's say you're going down a passageway and you smell, you, you smell that earthy, damp smell. You can see the walls are damp and everything and stuff. You know, there's, 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 things are flaking off, the plaster's coming apart. There was a fresco here, but it's mostly obliterated. And that's the description. Mm -hmm. And then I hand out the cards and it's like, you know, oh, and you're coming to a door, right? And, and it's like, you know, one person's like, oh, you noticed that under the flaking fresco, there's, there looks like there's the gleam of teeth, right? Because maybe there's a, there's a skull that's been embedded underneath the fresco. It's a, it's a clue. They may or may not do anything with it. Someone else may say, you know, we'll say, you know, you, your eye catches the, you know, your eye catches the lintel of the door and you see something like just a little sparkle of, of, of yellow light at the top of the lintel. Right. So they get a different information. That is that is a brilliant yeah. solution, because, you know, as a writer, you want to put all this depth of detail into the, you know, the, the room description or whatever. But your players are going to zone out, you know, three sentences in or whatever. So you're limited. That's right. But but there you so go. Limited. Now it's on them. Hey, you've got you've got this piece and you got that piece. And now you guys can describe the room to each other and, you know, or not, you know. Yep. Or not. And so you tell them, you say, you say, when when we're doing these things, you're in character. I need you to be in character. This is like improv theater, right? And so here's the things you've got. And um, and and everybody knows you got something. And so you got to kind of meta that away mm -hmm. because it may or may not, it may just be that, hey, you saw a little bu a fly buzzing through the air, right? That's it, which could be a hint for something else too. Um, you know, context. I believe that dungeons are made of made out of context. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a hallway or a room or what context, 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 right? Things should, uh, you know, one of the things that people don't like about Tomb of Horrors when I ask them about it is they're like, well, there was no warning that I was going to be obliterated by the mouth, <laughs> right? It was just a blackness. And so what do you do? You explore it because it's impenetrable. You can't, it, it absorbs all light. It's like the event horizon of a black <laughs> hole, right? And I'm like, well, exactly. They're like, but, but my character doesn't know what a black hole is right? So that's a problem. So the, the feel bad situations, whenever I talk to someone about Tomb of Horrors is, is I wasn't made aware, I wasn't given any hint or inkling that there was a problem. And so what I, what we do with this is we start out saying, we're going to put a table on here and, and there's a table in the book, you could have them roll it, or we're going to have a deck of cards that you could use, which is way faster, right? It's the actual solution but just in case you didn't get the deck or you lose it, <laughs> you lose you card, yeah. right? And so, um, so I, th you know, and, and all the play tests, when people would run it, they would come back and they would say, well, the cards didn't add much. They didn't do much for my players. And I would say, well, can you explain what that means? Well, they weren't like overwhelmingly important most of the time, right? But they, but they did add this sense of mood and feeling of, 
of air of mystery and urgency and that there was a problem, but they didn't quite understand it. I'm like, well, that's exactly what they're meant to evoke, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, imagine yourself as Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark going into the, the that first cave, right? And he's, or, you know, that, that first building, which is really just a buried building. And he's going in there to retrieve the idol. And, and there's a it's whole bunch of additions. Yeah, there's webs and everything. Well, tarantulas don't leave webs. So that was a different spider that left the web. <laughs> Actually, they do. I've got two tarantulas and, and they definitely put down floor webs, but I've never seen them do aerial webs. Um, you know, so, so you, you start thinking, it's like, what, what are the things that, that you pick up on when you have that heightened awareness in that moment? Because it's a stressful situation most of the time, right? Or it should be mm-hmm. for your player, for your characters. And um, yeah, so 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 by the time we're done, we'll have the encounter cards, we'll have the, our environment cards, we'll have these randomized cards, and then we have the adversary cards. And that's three different size cards. And some of these decks are 50 cards. This ends up being an expensive product to produce from anybody's point of view. Yeah. Um, and so the question becomes, how do you reduce the cost to do what you want with the with the quality level that you want and uh and still make it in such a way that someone can afford it because frankly you can go buy a module that's 900 pages long for ten dollars on drive through right and then you could customize the hell out of it and do whatever you wanted to it i'm not selling that product mm-hmm. right i'm selling a highly curated highly thought about you know hopefully elegantly produced and presented piece of material so that you don't have, so that you don't even have to think about thinking about the fact that the <laughs> thing doesn't do what it's not supposed to do because we've thought about it and it's a non-issue, right? Mm-hmm. That's why it's important. And so, so, you know, as a, you're not just a writer, right? You're also a problem solver. And part of the problem is you're writing, right? Not you're writing inherently, but the fact that the writing has limitations mm-hmm. And different people have tried different solutions. You know, uh, old school essentials tries bullet points. When I read through their stuff, it's like, gosh, I could randomly generate this. I could have chat chat GPT (laughs) generate me an OSE dungeon. And we're not far off of that, right? Because it's like, what's a room with two skeletons? And it's got, oh, there's, you know, it's got a smell in here and there's a saddlebag and I'm like, so that, what's the that's context, not, but it doesn't have room for the context because it's going bulletproof or uh, bullet point. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so something's lost in that and yet it's far easier to absorb. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, I, I think that slowly we're having a conversation about how you present the material in a way that's really great. There are things that Goodman Games does well. And then there are things where they don't even see that there's a problem, but there is right. And, and so um, you're always trying to improve. That would be my thought. Uh, you know, I don't want to produce the same product 30 times. Mm-hmm. I want to produce the product. Every product should be unique. And, and so that's what led me to self-publishing, but it's also what led me to book binding because I was like, you know, this can be done and it can be done by me in my workshop at a scale that isn't outrageous, right? Because I don't know about you, but I sell maybe 350, 400 of anything. Mm-hmm. That's it. So if I'm going to sell 400 of something, I really want to make it really nice, right? And and because I want the people who didn't get it to be jealous. <laughs> Why didn't I buy that, right? I mean, 
or, or 30 years from now, when someone comes across it, just like when I came across um, Arduin, and I was like, this stuff is insane. And it, but it's just glorious, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, you want, I want to evoke that feeling 30 years from now. I don't want it to be. Man, and then, I mean, and I don't. To, to do the things you want to do with the vision that you have, uh, but yet at the scale of, of a small publisher, uh, you, you can't, you can't go, you know, to the printer, you know, next door or whatever and get it done at a, at a price that you can then charge and have people want to buy. Uh, so. No, no, you're absolutely right. So you must control the means of production. Yes. I, I know that people don't like socialism <laughs> or communism or Marxist theory, but Marx was right. You really do want to control your means of production. Now, there's a way to control it that most people do, and that's that they pay someone else to do it. Perfectly fine. You know, I paid somebody else to print Tales from the Smoking Worm in a limited edition risograph. It's glorious, right? It's beautiful. It, it looks handmade it, because it is handmade. It's handmade by a family in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And it's real analog art. And it's, you know, us taking our time to make those things. At the same time, you know, this is the, uh, the DCC character folio that I'm showing you. This is the final production run. Um, and, it, and it is slick. Um, and it was printed at Mixam. And, uh, and, it, and it's great. And it's glorious for what it needs to do. It needs to stand up to a lot of abuse. And you're going to carry this in your bag. And, and if you're going to you know, add in a legacy character sheet too, right? So if you got your legacy folio, so you can take this to lots of cons and you're going to use, a, a, you know, something to, to tie those two things together so that doesn't fall apart. I have that whole system. We've been thinking about this for a while. Um, but on the other hand, the, the smoking worm or the monographs or the individual things, sandbox set pieces and stuff like that, that isn't something that is meant, you know, it's meant to be used, but it's not meant to be abused. Character booklets are meant to be abused, mm-hmm. right? They, they have certain needs. You could make that yourself and you could do it at a fraction of the cost. The print run for this, I just got 1700 books in and the print run cost was uh, just, just shy of like two grand. Well, I contacted them when they mixed in when they were printing it. I said, I really want to know your paper type. Can you tell me what type of paper you're using? And they said, well, we, we change paper depending on what we can get in and everything all the time. And I said, but I need to match something. I lied to them. I said, <laughs> I need to match something to the booklet that you can't produce for me, but I can produce myself. But I want the paper to be the same. And, and it was, it's not a total lie. I was thinking about adding something to this that I didn't. But, and they came back and they gave me the paper type and I looked it up and it's a common paper type. But yeah, I can buy it by the, by the case. I can buy it in big sheets, 25 by 33, and I could cut it down. I've got a guillotine or two and everything. And, and, um, and but I, I calculated the price at which they produced the paper. If I had to buy the paper myself, how much would it cost? It would have cost a couple hundred bucks. That was it, right? Paper's not expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, it can be, but, but necessarily it's not inherently the majority of the cost. The majority of the cost is the machine and the labor. And so, you know, they're running this on an HB Indigo press. This is a, this is by the way, a a inkjet printer scaled for mass publishing because all of the, um, the, the major mass publishers have now moved to inkjet, high resolution inkjet printers for the most part, if they're not running offset and you you don't get to offset till you get to lots of runs, right? But so for me, you know, this is what Mixam is printing and they're printing with an inkjet printer that has 600 DPI. 
Uh, it's called an Indigo HP. You can look it up. It's a big, it's a machine the size of my house. <laughs> and um, and it's, it's at least the size of like a single wide trailer, right? It's huge. And, um, and so it seems silly to run, you know, just 700 of these through it because they had to have been done running the print run before the lab, you know, the print run was done before, you know, they had started it almost, right? It was like, <laughs> we're only going to run this for two minutes. There, we're done. That's the print run. Um, so you can get high resolution, high chroma inkjet printers, or you could find old offset press, AB Dick 900s, 350s, whatever. Those are machines uh, that I learned to use in high school. Um, haven't used one since, but if 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 fifteen year old me could figure it out, I'm pretty sure that forty nine year old me could figure it out too. Um, and so uh, so yeah, so I, I started saying to myself, um, there's a couple things I want to do in retirement in this new career. One is produce truly produce the product I make. I, I want it to be made by my hands. When you pick it up, I want you to know. I made it, right? I glued it together. I squished the papers together with big presses and everything. And I did it by hand. Um, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, it also means that if I need to make five more, I can make five more. <laughs> I don't have to <laughs> worry about a big press run. This is a whole bunch of advantages to making this yourself. And, um, and so I bought, uh, I bought a book binding, a retired book binders collection of equipment. It's an eclectic collection. Some of it's a 500 years old. Some of it's the newest pieces are probably from the 1960s. Um, it only really has like one motor. So everything else is kind of handmade. It's all cast iron, heavy duty stuff, board shears, big nipper presses. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really kind of fun and glorious to play with this stuff. And it's a real treat. And so I have been reconditioning that equipment and learning how to be a bookbinder by taking classes. Um, and I go kind of three or four or five times a year over to Virginia and I get, I take classes at a place called Cat, Cattail Bindery, uh, Cattail Run Bindery. Um, and that's been a great experience. And so, um, yeah, so they've taught me how to make clamshell boxes. Well, a clamshell box is a three ring binder with a curved edge. Right. And, and, and it's got an extra box on the inside. But if you take that out, that's a three ring binder. Um, you know, so, you know, how to how to work with all this material by hand is uh, is kind of an interesting thing and how to explore stuff. Last year, I took a two day or, or sorry, a four day workshop in uh, marbleizing paper so I could do marble end sheets that are my own marble end sheets. Right. That I can literally say these are the colors I need and I need this and I'm going to make it. And so, so I spent a lot of time reconditioning this equipment with the idea that, um, that if you have one of these high resolution printers, you could probably run the print run yourself if you had the time. And, and I can have the time if I need to, right? I mean, it's either that or I just sit and write or do other things. But, um, you know, that to me is therapeutic to get up and work with my hands and assemble it. And, and then I know it works. I know if it doesn't work and I can solve the problem before I spend thousands of dollars and it comes back and I'm like, wow, I made a mistake. <laughs> you know, you've already, you've, already, you've already spent the money. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, so that's what that is about. The other part of that business is a desire to take uh, first, second edition AD and D books that have been thrashed, right? Mm -hmm. The book all the time. is still in good shape. 
right? But you see that all the time. The outsides are literally the corners of the books are worn away and the spine's gone. And But the book block is intact. You could take that book block and you could unstaple it because they were, they were public, they were, they're actually assembled in such a way that's called a textbook binding and it requires staples. They're not, they're not actually sewn together in the first edition versions. Second edition was sewn. Um, That's why they lay flat and better. And you could take those apart and you could fix the pages that need to be fixed. Um, There's ways to do that. Uh, totally strip off the other material and you could rebind it however you want. You want it in leather, we can do it in leather. You want it with a stamp on it, right? You know, DMG or this is Tony's DMG. (laughs) You can do that, right? You want to put a piece of custom art on it, you can do that. And so so the idea I've got is that in addition to publishing, maybe one or twice a month, I I will rebind these books. You know, they're not they're not cheap. Rebinding books is not a cheap process. But but these, uh, what I find is that, I, and I think you probably do, is, is the people you game with who play first edition still, those are cherished cherished items. Yes. And so um, like a relics. I'm pretty sure, yeah, they're like relics, right? And, 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 and people who have gotten to our age have usually uh, a, a certain amount of free capital and they, and they could spend a little bit of that over a year or two to rebind their first edition player's handbook and DMG or something, right? Not just that. I, I really... think of like the, the gift potentials. Like, you know, my family's always asking me, oh, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want for Christmas? Eh, nothing. But like something like that, oh, you know, I can have my, my beat up copy of this beloved game, you know, restored to something glorious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. 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 You can have the edges sanded and trimmed and cleaned and you can have them gold leafed with real gold right you can you can put bookmarks in that you always wanted to have in the first edition <laughs> player's handbook and you yeah. never had you can put almost as many of them in as you want right um yeah there's lots you can do with them and uh, and so so that sounded like kind of a cool thing to do too and and i was like you know uh it's kind of neat to get to salvage people's history and make things that they'll be able to hand down to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cause I've heard a lot of that from, from players that are like, Oh, I introduced my kids to first edition D and D and that's all we play. <laughs> and, you know, and I really, you know, I believe in, I'm, I'm leaving my books to my kids. Right. And stuff. So, yeah. So that's kind of a cool thing. So I do believe in that mission and I've been slowly learning how to do that, how to recondition books and everything and stuff. And, um, and stuff so it's it's a process it's it's not something i can do overnight and so it'll take years i'm patient um and uh and 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 it's a and you know as um my mentor told me you know she was she and i were talking uh, after one of the workshops i was kind of telling her what i wanted to do and i'm like you know i've done the science academia thing and and i was pretty high stress i'm looking for a low stress job (laughs) um something that i can do at my own pace and then I can do as long as I want. And she's like, well, I know bookbinders who are in their late 80s and they can still bookbind, right? And, and so it's a great set of skills that you're probably not, they're going to outlive you um, because you're probably going to fail before you can stop doing it. And so, yeah, so, so that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting way to look at my next you know, career is, is, yeah, 
And and it's really cool. Like you and I were talking about your recent unnatural selections. Yeah, the, sorry, what was the three ring unnatural binder. selections, right? Yeah. The binder issue and everything. And, and at the same time that you have come up with a binder, I had been working on this binder idea for a while. Um, it's a little more complicated than well. First of all, I want to do. I've always loved the Monstrous Compendium. I always thought that it was a flawed product, and it was a flawed product that could be corrected. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling you feel the same. Exactly way. same way. Yes. Uh, and and I and I and I wanted to do it in a way that upgraded the paper because the paper was shoddy, and then no longer put two creatures on the same page, front and back, mm-hmm. and uh, and then also carried forward that idea of holding up a picture and saying, "This is what it looks like." Right. And, uh, and everything, <laughs> excuse me. And, um, and so, so yeah, so I had been working on that for a while and the idea I'd come to is, well, I'll just make everything right. I can buy the binder materials and I can, you know, rivet them on or screw them together there. You can get something called Chicago screws and they'll just screw right through the book board. And that's cool because if you ever ruin your board, you can just replace the binder and keep the mechanism. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I if you ever destroyed it, I could replace it. For you, <laughs> right. Uh, instead of just throwing it away, let's fix it. Let's not waste uh, a perfectly good metal mechanism. Right. I mean, so there's also some cool, you know, I'm, I'm a recycler. Right? I, I fix things as much as I can. And 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 some of that's in there, too. Right. Is I want to make a product that can be used and is useful, but also can be fixed when it needs to be and uh, and everything and stuff so so there's an ecosystem of stuff there um and i think i think you know that's part of it and so that's that's a cool cool set of projects to work on and and you and i have different takes on it and Mm -hmm. that's perfectly acceptable um but uh but yeah i'm I'm, i i won't get to it this year but i'm i will get to testing what i want to test for it this year and that's that's the goal so sometimes these projects take me a couple years to put together it's, it's, it's amazing, you know, how many things you can have on the back burner at a time, you know, uh, you, you get these ideas, you're like, oh, I want to do this, you get to kind of messing around with that, and you're like, well, that's, you know, it needs more development, and uh, I know I've always, yes. I tell people, oh, this year, you know, we're going to come out with this, this, and this, and, and nah, <laughs> maybe one of those three, and then it's something I didn't even think of is going to come out this year, and those, you know, it's just weird. It, yep. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. So the DCC character folio, um, not an original idea, right? Character booklets have been out for a long time, but not one for DCC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I play tested it for two years before I finalized it. Um, Tales from the Smoking Worm, most of those character classes have been play tested pretty well. Um, at least they've run through the rigors of playing in my game and, and a couple friends' games. And so, uh, you know, that that's a little different system uh, setup. Uh, but yeah, you know, so it's like, things you know i work on a project and and oftentimes i'm like oh i really want this for this project but in order to build that i need to build x first right i need to test this and so one of the reasons why i did for whom the bell trolls and hangman's garden was they weren't my property i mean i own them now right they're part of the company but um but they weren't something i wrote so they weren't something super near and dear to me in terms of writing so one of the things i found i don't know about you but the more I work on a project, the more it's important to like my history, like my game world, right? I've always wanted to publish my game world, but I keep hedging my bets on publishing my game world because it's like, well, I should test this stuff, not the game world, but I should test the type of publishing I want to do first. So I've perfected it by the time I get to the game mm-hmm. world because I don't want to do the game world first and then screw it up. 
And, um, and so, yeah, so that's why those two modules or adventures were great because if they were, if they fell apart and they didn't work, I wasn't ruining a piece of something that to me was a sacred cow. Didn't, didn't you come know? as personally to you. Yeah. Yep. And I don't want to disparage the two writers. They, they did great work, right? That's not the problem, but it, there is something about the production and, yeah. and doing all these little pieces and everything. Well, it probably you, also helped you on... from the standpoint that that you're developing a, a new system to um, to facilitate a game, and it's not a game that's already you know in your head 100. It's it's something that's even foreign to you, so you can really know if it's working or not. Probably. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, because because definitely one of the things that's really uh, if you know the module too well, uh-huh. you don't notice its flaws. Yes. Right. This is the same thing with any any writing. Um, it, it is it is very easy to be on your twelfth draft of something and not realize that this is a fundamentally flawed thing because you don't have that outside input. Which is why I always use an editor, sometimes two, <laughs> uh, a developmental editor and a copy editor, to read something and say, "Tell me I'm not insane," before this goes to press. Um, and 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 then tell me where it's a problem, you know. And so they read through and everything. And heck, uh, Tales from the Smoking Worm Six, which is kickstarting right now, has the Tentacular Nest Builder Nest Generator in it. That went through four different editors <laughs> before I finished it, and and was happy with it. Not only that, but we also on top of it, I got a buddy who's a computer programmer, and I was like, you know, I have all these steps. You've got to do all these things in order. There's instructions, right? It's a it's a how-to build. Almost like a flowchart kind of, kind of scenario? or Almost like a flowchart, but it's like you do this part first, and you do that part first, and then you're going to take this little piece of information, and you're going to take it down here, and you're going to plug it in, and it's going to impact how these things go. And, and, and everything needs to create essentially a schematic of a dungeon in 20 minutes worth of effort. And I was like, but, you know, I showed it to my friends and, and we, and I ran through one of them with them and, uh, and that was a blast, right? We had a lot of fun and everything, but my, my buddy was, I was like, could you read it for me? Could you try making one, right? Make a dungeon. And he said, he said, he said, I'm, I decided not to make a dungeon for you. I decided to program the dungeon for you <laughs> so you could run thousands of dungeons and everything. And that became that online tool that we're working on was, was his ability. He's like, He's like, he's like, what you don't understand about programming, and, and I'm not a programmer, so he's right, I don't understand it, is uh, programming is a logic problem. And when you're doing these things of this happens, this happens, but then this modifies this. He's like, if the logic doesn't work, you don't get anything out of the end. He's like, but if, you, if, if it does work, you can sit there and hit that button a billion times and you'll get something every time. And he's like, so the best thing I could do was program it for you so we could see if the logic worked. And, uh, and I was like, wow, that was really nice of you too. <laughs> and, and, and then he was like, well, we could do something else with this if you want, uh, you know? And I was like, yeah, well, well, so we decided to make this tool for online nest generation. But um, so yeah, sometimes things take a long time. Um, that nest generator is an exercise. It was something I wanted to write, but it's an exercise for a different project. It's like, okay, now I know I can do this. Now I'm going to go build it in a whole bunch of different ways mm-hmm. and, and everything. And so I'm, I'm working on a, a setting environment that, um, that could do a whole, could have a whole bunch of these little things, right. Where you have an encounter and that encounter is not just, Oh, I fight a monster. I see something and I fight it. 
<laughs> it's we encounter an abandoned ship or we encounter this, we encounter that. It, What's in this thing? Is that part of the the petrified frog, the house of the petrified frog product that you're talking about? Or is that even another one setting type? No, that's a totally different one. Okay. House of the Petrified Frog. House of the Petrified Frog uh, has been written for a while and has been sitting there just kind of waiting to get mm. printed. And um, and part of that is finding a good artist to pair with. So you want to have a good artist you can pair with because if I'm going to do an, an, a module, I want all of the art to be done by one person um, because I want a unified visual field. Mm -hmm. I don't want competing artists. Um, I don't have a problem if people choose to use multiple artists, and certainly there are many publishers who have. Yeah, but there, there's projects um, the that, that that's appropriate for, and there's projects that it, it ruins the feel or ambience of it. And yeah, 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 and and so like Tales from the Smoking Worm, we use usually six or seven different artists, right? But that's okay. Yeah, it's that's a variety product. Every little article yeah. is different. Yeah, and um, and so when I'm working on something that's atmospheric and I want it to be consistent, then I'm looking to find the right artist to work on that project because their art is going to be uh, telecasting, visually telecasting what it is that I'm trying to achieve. Hmm. Right. Well, and imagine so, too, when uh, you're, when you're talking about making sets of cards, that's also, you know, doubly important because you want those cards to have the same feel for the, the, you know, viewers. That's right. Yeah. And so, uh, so we, yeah, so we've, uh, we've, we've identified an artist. We're kind of still working through whether he's going to do this one. I have another artist in mind if it if it falls through, but um, yeah, this is that House of the Petrified Frog is just an idea of I got this project that's been sitting on the back burner for two years. It's ready to go. It's been ready to go. We just need to get the artists and finish it. And so, um, you know, the any of the most of the time, I take a percentage of the profits, a healthy percentage of the profits off of Smoking Worm, and I put them directly to hiring artists to do more art. And um, and so, yeah. That's where most of that goes. Yeah. Certainly that's how the monographs got done. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 But I mean, so there, there are many different projects. I, you know, I, I think you're right. It's nice to have a whole bunch of them though, because I get to a certain point where I hit, um, I hit an artistic block or I hit a philosophical block or I hit something and I just need to, I, the answer will come. Mm -hmm. It just needs to not be forced. And when it's forced, it never feels good. And I need to go work on something else. And I'll be sitting there eating dinner or showering or I'll wake up at 3 a.m. And I'm like, <laughs> there it is. That's the solution to this problem. <laughs> it, it's here. And it, it never fails. It, it always happens. Um, you just got to let, let it breathe it until it does. So it's not, yeah, I get what you're yeah. saying. Go on to this thing. Let that thing sit. It'll come to you. Yeah. It'll come to you. And so, so I work on projects until I hit a roadblock and then I shift to a, to an adjacent project. Um, usually one that can hopefully help me, even, especially if it's a mechanical problem, can help me solve that problem. <clears throat> so, yeah, um, I think we've gotten off topic. That's what this show is all about is off topic. That's just, what it's just all about. Seeing where we go, where we end up. Um, yep. But I do know, I, I told you an hour and I know we're getting on to, to almost two here in a little bit. So um one of the things, uh, well, actually, let me real quick, just just in case it matters. Um, I mean, you and I uh, are both fairly well seated working with uh, DCC, MCC stuff quite a bit. Um, I know I only have some very small plans to do anything with with the OSC type setting. So the OGL thing really 
other than the way it was impacting my friends, it didn't really affect me at much at all. Um, any thoughts on that that you want to share? Because I know that's a lot of people are just wondering how some of us are doing or what our thoughts are on that. Well, it was definitely an interesting couple of weeks. Um, I, I have never seen a company shoot itself in the foot in real, in real time. <laughs> it was it was like it was like watching a, a slow train accident. Yes. Right? It was like you knew that was going to be bad. And then it was bad. And um, it does impact me. Um, it impacted up until the new license from Goodman. It impacted everybody, right? Potentially, Potentially yeah. I was, I was staring at the face. I was staring in the face, looking at it, going that I was going to have to, if I took something out of Smoking Worm Number One and I reprinted it, or I wanted to reference it, or I wanted to change it, it was under OGL, and so I was going to have to upgrade to the new OGL, even though it had nothing to do with it. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you noticed. But there was no conversation about the third edition SRD for the most part in that whole fiasco. This is not about third edition, which is what DCC is based off of. This is about moving from fifth edition to sixth edition, right? This is this. We don't have a dog in this fight, except we're left hanging on to the OGL because 1.0a was created in third edition times and the third edition SRD is deeply embedded into it. And so since the new OGL rescinded it, was going to rescind it, that was going to be a problem. Mm. And, um, and, and, and I was sitting here thinking, well, what is it that I really use other than the three saving throws? Goodman rewrote a lot of combat. Mighty Deeds got rid of feats. Wizard spells are completely different. Um, you know, your attributes are the complete. same, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, two or three of the attributes are the same, but it has a luck mechanic. The cleric works different, <laughs> monsters work different, they certainly don't have stats, right? I mean, you know, they are this, and, and and so when Joseph Goodman, um, thankfully released a new license and asked us all to sign it, um, I immediately printed it, signed it sent it back to him within about 10 minutes. And I was thankful that the OGL was no longer a requirement in it. Um, and actually I, that was a, fu a funny thing because I was sitting there pondering the OGL when I realized that you were supposed to re-sign that contract every two years, the license. And I had failed to do that. And, and it wasn't something Joseph had bugged me about, right? We had, it, it, I'd been publishing Smoking Worm for three years and I had just, I hadn't read the contract since the beginning, right? I didn't, didn't remember it. And, uh, and so I was sitting there about to send him an email saying, you know, hi, Joseph, I'm wondering if I should sign this. <laughs> what are we going to do? And, and, you know, lo and behold, uh, you know, his email showed up and said, here's the new contract, a new licensing contract, go ahead and sign that. And you no longer need the OGL. And so the first thing I did was strip the OGL out of all my previous products. Because I'm like, well, if I don't need it, I don't need it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so I do think what it, what bothers me is I take inspiration from a lot of that third edition era material. I have a library. This isn't the room. It's the next room over, but I have a library with over 10,000 gaming books in it. Right. And, 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 and a big chunk of that is third edition or first edition or second edition or ancillary products, right. Third party publishing. And, um, and I constantly am like, Hmm. I need this type of a thing, or I'm wanting to think about this type of thing. And I'll pull four or five copies of, of different ways it was done down from my books 
read through them just to see how people have treated it in the past. It may not be the way I go, but I use my reference, my, my gaming collection as a reference library. And, um, and so that's a problem because like a lot of people were working off of uh, Tome of Horrors, right? The, the, um, the Necromancer Games, Tome of Horrors 1 especially, which was completely open. Right, these are old Fiend Folio first edition monster manual, second uh, monster manual one, monster manual two monsters that Watsi at the time had no interest in reprinting, and so the the Necromancer press guys had had reprinted them and brought them up to third edition stats and made them all open, and they're everywhere if you look. Right, those get referenced all the time yeah. throughout many different products, um, OSC. Um, they're referenced in Delta Green, right? <laughs> they have literally taken monsters out of the Tome of Horrors and, and, uh, and used them in the Delta Green books. And so the Delta Green books, the new publishing, you know, new version of Delta Green uh, that did its own edition, they have, they have the OGL in it. And so I'm like, so there's many places where I'm getting ideas. And if I'm not, I'm often referencing those and I'm often citing them. And, uh, and I was halfway, you know, you did your monster book, which is cool. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting it in my hands. But I was about halfway through when we had that talk. And a lot of those were taking something out of the Tome of Horrors, completely rewriting it. But the inspiration was there and I was going to cite it. And all of these individual monster entries that I had, had notes at the bottom of what I needed to cite in the OGL. So yeah, so that was not a fun time. <laughs> so so yeah, that does that does. I I did consider myself affected by it. I mean, not catastrophically. I wasn't going to be Pathfinder, right? Mm -hmm. Who thankfully defiantly said, "Kind of screw you." <laughs> um, and and clearly, Cobbled Press was halfway through. I mean, uh, their their Black Flag. They started working on that last year. Yeah. Before they got their license change. Yeah, it, it really to uh, me that know, was a. It just made me smile to think that okay, somebody somebody knew what was coming, you know, e either talking to friends that were on the inside or whatever, and and, and planned ahead. And I just that, that was just cool to hear. Oh yeah, hey, we're we're already about done with this. It's coming out. <laughs> we're gonna yeah put it in uh, put it in the uh, the commons here, and anyone can use it. And that's just cool. So yeah, so in the end, um, I don't think I don't think this is over, but I I think we've come to a point of. The first battle was a defeat for Watsi, and uh, you know, and um, and we'll see what happens yeah. next. And in the meantime, Joseph doesn't require us to have the OGL, and so I'm stripping it out. Well, um, the, well, the other thing I I got get uh, <laughs> the other thing that um, I think came out of it that does affect both of us is just the idea that you know we're seeing such huge cells uh, of DCC and MCC and and uh, Pathfinder. Um, so, you know, there, there's opportunities for new customers that weren't in our, our little circle before. So that's, you know, that's probably Yeah, that's great. And so, I mean, so if Goodman has had the best sales month ever mm -hmm. on record from last January, and they've sold out of a year's worth of DCC that they literally only just reprinted, right? Because he, <laughs> he sold out of his print runs in, at, he sold his last of his print runs in August and got the 10th printing in. And so, because uh, I don't know if you were at Gen Con. Yeah, yeah, where they're selling them for 10 selling, bucks to get rid of the old ones. They were 10 bucks. Yeah. I was like, this is insane. I mean, <laughs> I bought a stack of MCC books to give out as Christmas presents because I was like, everybody needs an MCC book. <laughs> we'll just take a stack. Um, 
So yeah, so when you've got that kind of, you know, you're, you're moving that through, I think that's phenomenal. And, I, and I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing those players play the game, not just buy it and say, ah, oh, now, you know, the crisis is over and I don't have to worry about it. But, um, but hopefully those, are, those will be new people who can explore our products and, uh, and everything. So yeah, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, I think it's been a good partnership. I think it is a good partnership with Goodman Games. And um, and so I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time checking with Joseph to make sure that a product that I may be, as I get into the visualization stage sometimes, I will have an idea for a product or a, or a project that is maybe questionable, right? And, and And I'm like, you know, before I spend a whole bunch of time and treasure I should double check and make sure that Joseph's at least inherently not a, not opposed to yeah. this. And so, so that's a good, a good working relationship to have when I can send him an email, explain what I'm trying to do. And he can come back and say, yeah, that sounds cool. Go ahead. I don't have a problem with it. Just make sure you cite this or no, I have no issues with this, you know, or, Hey, this is, could be problematic. I think you should do X. Um, that's really nice. Yeah. So. Yeah. You can't, can't do better than have the the head of the company, you know, being just a personal conversation with you about, you know, whatever it is you're trying to, you know, suss through or what have you. I know in the monster book, that was one of the things I was like, well, you know, I kind of want to eventually make this to be something that everybody can contribute to and can have anything in it. I kind of like to start that by having some of the, you know, beloved creatures out of the MCC guide and a couple of the ones out of the DCC guide be in there. And he's like, well, shoot me a list of what you want. And then we'll kind of look through and see if we're okay with that. And they proved everyone. So it's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's wonderful. Right. <clears throat> and, and, and I've done the same thing. Once you've kind of tested the waters and he understands the kind of product projects you're trying to work with and build. Um, I think then he's a little more trusting with you, with his intellectual property. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, I, I always try and take that really carefully and make sure that I'm not abusing it Sure, yeah. and that, that he's aware of, of how things are progressing and he gets all the feedback. So, you know, often I will talk, like I said, I'll talk to him at the very beginning when I have a manuscript done before it goes to editor, because that's the point where I start paying people. <laughs> I will send him edit manuscripts. And I'll say, here's the man, here's the unedited manuscript. This is what it's going to look like. Um, no art, nothing. Cause I'm, I, you know, I'd like to get your okay before I go spend $2,000, right. <laughs> In editing and, and, and art and layout and stuff or more. And, uh, and he'll come back and say, yep, that's great. Not a problem. And I'm like, okay, I'll be back at the very end, at the end of the Kickstarter, when I've got the whole product finished, you'll get one last look at it. And, uh, and so he'll, you know, so that's just a good working relationship to develop. And I'm sure that his working relationship with other people is different and stuff. So it's great that, that he's able to give me the time that he gives me. So, yeah, so it's, it's been a, been a treat. So. Right, well, uh, we, we got to talk a few more things real quick. We got to let people know what's out there right now and what's coming out soon. Um, so why, why don't you start with, I know you get your, your uh, tells from smoking warm number six, right? This kick starting right now has like a week or it's, two weeks left. It's got like a week left. It ends on February 14th. So, um, you know, buy your Valentine, <laughs> a copy of tales from smoking worm number six. Uh, you won't regret it. This is a great issue. Um, this one has, uh, it has a new class called the soul eater in it. Soul eaters are like anti-wizards. They literally dampen magic around them inherently. 
So they've kind of got this magic nullifying field that walks around with all around them. They can counterspell any spell. And if they defeat the wizard, they get to keep and eat the spell and internalize it. And then they have different things they can do with it, uh, including cast it back uh, or heal themselves and things like this. Um, in for, addition to that, for, for uh, me, spell, uh, any... judges like myself is, does it print it up not just as a character class, but also as a, you know, as a, a monster write-up or NPC write-up? Those, those will be coming, okay. right? And so, so yeah, I, I, right now it's just a player character class with a really awesome psychedelic character sheet that you can get custom printed by us. Um, there's only going to be less than 100 of these printed because I've only got like eight backers backing it right now. But you can, and, and then if we can get past, I think it's 350 backers. We're most of the way there. We've got about, 250 or 260 backers right now so we're in the home stretch if we can get to 350 I think, or maybe it's 400 i can't remember exactly off the top of my head that character sheet goes up as a free pdf um, along with the Beastmaster character sheet from the last issue from issue five of the smoking worm which was a one we that was a stretch goal we didn't hit and so i'm literally doubling down on my stretch goals <laughs> is if these don't if they're not met i'm just going to keep adding free things to them until we hit them and so, um, so yeah, so there's a, the soul leader is, we've been playing it. It's a brilliant class. It works really well, especially for judges that like to have wizards and magic in their game. Now, you know, this is, this is, this is a lot, it's been a lot of fun to play. Um, the other thing we've got in here is, uh, let me think issue six or issue six. It's got the tentacular nest generator. Like I mentioned, it will have a sleeve and a pull out nest that you can literally, it's an entire dungeon module that when I ran it easily could have taken up five or six, four hour sessions to get through. It is uh, uh, kind of uh, like a fun land type slash murder hobo, <laughs> you know, grind fest where what happens with tentaculars, I detailed them in issue three, male tentaculars build nests to attract females and the females mate and then they leave and then they're never seen again. They go to another dimension. I'll detail them at some other point, but um. But the males then rear the young and, uh, and, and the young only mature by eating the souls of wizards, right? So they have to, in order to go through a life stage to the next, they have to devour the soul of a wizard. And so male adult tentaculars go out into the world or have their followers go out of the world, abduct adventuring parties, and then drop them into their nests, into the tunnel systems, which are just trap filled. And then they let their, you know, their young are just let loose in there to hunt them down and everything is, is kind of think about cats play, right? <laughs> That's what a tentacular looks like is a cat with a whole bunch of tentacles for legs and a tail. And so, um, so this is, this is a great way for a judge to develop a, a within probably 30 to 40 minutes, a quick nest uh, on, on how you, and, and everything And each tunnel can have different types of traps, whether they're mechanical melee traps or missile traps or magic traps um uh you know uh they, they they just have a whole host of flavor to them and everything this is the first iteration of them and uh, and it's a new way of generating you know it's it's a every time it's a new iteration is a fresh rebuild because they're just unique every time complex social structure of the tentacular is represented in it um almost effortlessly so you can so get you can that come context on, on some really here. that's nice yeah, there's some really great context. That's a big, it, it, it's like 20 pages of the zine. It's half, a third of the zine. Um, then there's the, uh, like I said, the Soul Eater. We have, um, gosh, my brain is 
blanking on what else is in this issue. Um, we have uh, oh we have a we have a um, an article on uh, coordinated efforts. So I have a very short ruling on how I deal with player coordination on skill checks and stuff like this, or strength checks or whatever. If you want a couple people to work together, that rule is presented, um, and that's a really nice nice addition to a rule. It's once you've read it, you'll never forget it. It's easy to work with. It's a great rule. Um, and we use it all the time to great success. And it, it really is kind of fun. And it's a die chain builder. Nice. So it's it'll let you, you know, you don't get to roll D24s and D30s very often. Um, and so this is going to help you roll those dice more often. And anytime you roll funky dice, I think it's a win-win <laughs> win situation. Um, there's an, I think there's an organization in here um, and, and everything called the School of the Tree. No, that's in this one. Um, I, my mind is blanking because it's been I've done so much today. Uh, well, let yeah. me ask you this because I, I know the the Kickstarter. I've looked at the page; it's super well laid out, folks. I mean, if you go there, I mean, it does very well break down like what's in the magazine and, and what to you know some of the stretch goals he was talking about. Um, one of the things I, I, I wasn't I didn't get to is if they get in at this point, you know, this is our, uh, issue number six. Um, or, do they have the ability to buy back issues? Oh, absolutely. So there's an, an extensive add-ons. Uh, you can buy all the back issues. Um, we're low on limited editions, but the standard editions are great um, and everything. And as a matter of fact, this is the last time you'll probably be able to, uh, we're, we're quickly running out of the first print run on those. I'm going to have to raise the price. I get those printed for me and I don't have my bone press up and running yet. So the you know the costs to print have gone up and so this has yeah. become yeah uh, and so i'm going to have to raise the price and everything um you can also get we are beginning to work on a collection of fun things for the smoking worm eventually this will culminate in a year or two in an actual probably a monograph but maybe a smoking worm article on the the, the establishment itself with maps and everything that really details the smoking worm out including uh, ultimately um, things like menus. But right now we've started early. Uh, and so you can get uh, smoking worm coasters and everything. I'm going to do a couple different versions of these over the next couple issues. And then we'll move on to things like menu items and, uh, and menus and stuff. Um, there is, uh, oh, there are Cthulhu patron missions, seven patron missions that Cthulhu might send those of you who are wizards or elves or somebody else who has uh, taken Cthulhu as your patron. Uh, there's always Culpepper's Herbal, which is an ongoing effort to DCCify uh, herbalism. Um, the Poison Gardens of Kelebesh Moog will have another 40 or 50 um, uh, things in there, I think. But Culpepper's is in every issue. It's, it's a great, usually two or three herbs. And they have special properties that are not always magical, right? Um, and so they, they have some cool stuff. Um, we have uh, a, necromo a necromilo's uh, or, or necromilo's bobble. This is a um, this is a magic item that is updated from a, from the Fist of the Miracle from third edition D&D from the, the RPGA network ran, uh, produced this die as a D20 um, for the uh, in in like 2004, I think it was, they go for three or $400 now. Um, and one of the things, since you, you heard a little bit about the backstory of Smoking Worm and, the, and everything in Emiracle and Locaramon and, and, and Necromilo is 
they're each a mage aligned to an alignment. So, you know, Emericol is chaotic, um, Necromilo is neutral, and Locaramon is, is lawful. Um, and so this, we've updated D30. This is a really neat idea, actually, because we're going to offer the SDL of this for free as a stretch goal if we hit it. But before we hit that, we actually, in order to design this, I'm showing up the actual 3D print of this so that yeah, so Lou can see it. Th these are it's like a, a kiwi-sized die. Um, now, you had yeah. said D20, but that looks like a D30 to me, is it? So the RPGA produced a D20. We upgraded it to a D30 okay. because, of course, the D30 for, for is important in, uh, in, in DCC. And so we updated the sigils and everything and stuff. Um, uh, Brian net, uh, basically came up with those or researched them, and then I hand drew them. Then we scanned them into a into a computer system and made them into a font. And we there's another stretch goal where we'll be giving away Necromilo's sigils as a font. Um, this was actually a solution to a problem because we needed to put the sigils inside tables, and it's easier if it's a font than mm -hmm. if it's individual, individual things. You have to so, place yeah. thirty images versus typing. 30 different letters and then changing the font to the correct font. And so, um, so that's all been produced. I, I, I this is going to, I'm going to play with this for a while. I'm going <laughs> to, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun thing for your game. Um, uh, there's a, we, we explore dwarven luck in this issue, giving dwarves a different type of luck. Um, so it's things they can do with their luck score that non-dwarves can't do because of the nature of dwarves. Hmm. Uh, this is the this is the first in an ongoing series of articles that will explore some of the species, elves, halflings, uh, humans, even and stuff like this, and and others that we build. Um, you know, th there's there's a couple of these coming over the next two or three years, um, and then always we have a comic book in the back, Onward Retainer, drawn by my my good buddy uh, Joel Phillips. It's an ongoing story. Uh, this is out of issue five. There's this one was three panels. Or three pages of art. Uh, I think issue six has two, and so this is just an ongoing fun story. Uh, that's that's lots of fun. Yeah. So check out the website. Um, you know, just search Smoking Worm, or if you happen to get um, updates by Goodman, our our zine was featured in uh, the Wednesday update for uh, you know new new stuff Wednesday or whatever it is, and um, and so you can go to the link there. Uh, it's it's easy to get to and, and everything, uh, but you'll be supporting uh, small press. This is handmade by, a, like I said, by a it, group of Rizzo and folks. It's beautiful. I really wish we had a video program that you could see some of these. I mean, you, you just gotta get online and and you know go to their website, the the Blind Visionary uh, uh, Publications website, because um, you can see they've got you know images of it. Uh, you, you could tell that this is a man that that cares about what he produces, and and uh, you know as he was saying, you know, capturing that ability to be the one that produces it all, you know, you can keep it as an art form. Um, that's key there. And it's, it's awesome stuff. Um, Thanks. Will. If, if they want to get the monograms, uh, I mean, I know you, you said that you can get the back issues on the Kickstarter, but the monogram adventures, yep. are they available on the Kickstarter? Or is that better to go to the, they are. Okay. All right. You can, you can go to Goodman or you can get them directly from me. Um, we're getting pretty low, but um, but I've, I've got some left uh, of the original print runs, which so these are the original risographic print runs, all hand made and everything. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do next with them. You know, these are these are interesting. I mean, you know, they're they really were a passion project. I'm sure I'll figure it out, but uh, I haven't figured out what the standard edition of those is going to look like yet. 
Um, you can get the box, right? So we have a premium smoking worm storage box that holds three issues uh, at a time. This and is like a so, like a library magazine box kind of thing. It's a, it's like think of it like uh, the red box, right? It's a little oh, okay. it's what they call a slip top face or a slip face box, and so it's it's just like a, a normal gaming box, like you would think of. Okay. Um, yeah, and and so it'll it's it's a, it's got a brassy gold embossed uh, or not embossed but foil stamped um, huge smoking worm uh, <laughs> logo on the front, and it says "Stales from Smoking Worm" on the spine. Um, and I'm amazed, you know, I, I made those and I really enjoyed, um, I didn't actually make them myself, but I designed them and I, there's a little box manufacturer in, in Marion, Indiana. And, uh, they're one of the last family owned box manufacturers left in the country. Used to be 40, 50 years ago, there were box manufacturers in every major city in the U S this is the last guy. And uh, and as far as I can tell, they're one of the major employers of Marion, Indiana. It's a pretty depressed place um, in terms of economics. Mm. And um, and so we went out there and, and I, I handpicked these up and everything. But these guys make these on, again, antique bookbinding machinery and stuff. And um, I haven't quite learned how to make boxes yet. It's coming. But um, but yeah, they're they're really cool. And uh, I am just constantly amazed. In issue five, we sold like 58 of those. I was like, that is insane. Um, and so they've continued to be a good seller in issue six. I'm getting low on them. Uh, I haven't decided what I'm going to do next, whether I'm going to reprint them exactly the same or if I'm going to change some colors or do something different. I don't know. But uh, but they are available for now. And um, I don't foresee running out of them this, probably the next Kickstarter. Uh, yeah, we have tons of really cool stuff that you can check out on there. There really is a real bevy of stuff. Um, so yeah, That's you awesome. can support our online membership. Smoking Worm is going to become, uh, we're going to, we're going to actually create online generators for their character classes and everything. Uh, so you'll be able to log in, uh, to the system and create as a hundred first level Beastmasters or whatever it is you're going to make. Uh, soul eaters and everything that, that stuff is coming we're starting with the tentacular nest generator that's the first featured item and then it, and more stuff will come online as we develop it um, awesome. over the year it's yeah the, yeah one so thing that scares me is i know about, everything's going digital but i'm so far from understanding that stuff that it's like man but uh it sounds like yeah. you know with with your friend there you've got an in in into that uh, side of things that is fantastic he, he's been absolutely phenomenal to work with He's really great. I mean, he's a friend. He, I met him in high school. So, I mean, this is, he's, a, you know, he's, I've known him for 30 years and um, I couldn't do it without him um, and stuff. So you can get the smoking worm patch, uh, which is well, they're beautiful. These like three and a half inch tall patches with the smoking worm logo of the shield and everything. So there's tons of stuff you can get. Um, yeah. It's, it's a pretty nice Kickstarter um, and it's doing well. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. It, it's sitting at about eighty eight hundred dollars. Nice. So that's 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 kind of where I expected it to come in at. Um, you know, we need about another seventy five backers before we start hitting stretch goals. That we've got six days left, so that's that's entirely possible. So, folks, this uh, should know. be hitting at least on Friday. So, um, I mean, you got time left, and it's uh, I mean, bang for buck. This is this is one of those deals that you don't want to miss out on. Do you have anything uh, that you know is coming up after this, or is it still kind of just seeing what gets done first in the kitchen? Oh, no. Um, 
So uh, Tales of the Smoking Worm is 60 pages. Right now, uh, the, it kickstarts at $22, which is a real deal. Um, uh, we, have, we have tried for two years to get four issues out a year. And this year, I have written all four issues. I'm actually finishing the fourth issue right now. Three issues have been edited, and two of them are already in layout. And so we are very close to having everything in pre-production done so that we can consistently put these out quarterly. And one of the things we're going to begin starting to do is offer up uh, short adventures. Um, they're not going to be monographs. Uh, we may add those later, but we're going to we're definitely going to do more of them. But um, we're going to start doing short, digest-sized adventures. Um, so I can get more experience of it. You know, I've been writing uh, uh, adventures. I've been participating in uh, Dungeon 23. Nice. Uh, so I'm doing a little bit of writing every day and stuff. It's been really, really fun, actually. I, I really like it. And uh, I'll continue to play test that. And so I expect in the second half of the year, you'll start seeing, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a, a little short little adventure come out with everything that, again, will have like cards and stuff associated with it. Stuff that will allow it to be, you know, to kind of meet the vision that I have for what the tools I want to have sitting at a table with players um, and everything. So that's coming. House of the Petrified Frog is in art. And so it will be coming as soon as it's done. Uh, we were, we're not going to push it. I'm kind of hoping to get it out mid-year. Um, and then um, and then I have, I have several other big projects, but, um, but, you know, they're not ready for prime time yet. However, if you go to GaryCon, um, I'm running some playtests at GaryCon, um, and so uh, that that's uh, you, you can get in on that. Um, Gesh of the, uh, uh, the 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 world Gesh or whatever it is that uh, James Posnell is running, sorry, Gesh of the Multiverse is running too, where you can get into one-hour slots with a whole bunch of different third-party creators and kind of jump from world to world with your central character. So that's happening at GaryCon. Um, so, um, and I, I don't think I'll be at Origins. I don't, don't know. The next major convention I'll probably be at is Gen Con. And, I, and I'm actually, yeah, I'll be doing, we'll be playtesting more material there. There'll be new, new stuff. Plus you can play Hangman's Garden. You can play uh, For Whom the Bell Trolls. I'm going to have, I'm actually going to have several people who are going to be running modules for me. So uh, yeah, any, any of those that you sign up for at like Gen Con, always come with a uh, with uh, some kind of product and so the ticket's a little more expensive but you get a product in the in in the in the in you know in the production you know in the play away, yeah. so you show up and play you walk away with a with an issue of tales from the smoking worm or you walk away with a, you know the crime and guilt deck or something like this yeah so all of that's there so all we right. try and we try and do some added things for gen con because it's such a such a that's big awesome thing. so Trevor, man, yeah. I, I know I milked a lot of time out of you tonight, but I'm so glad that you, you spent the time with us and, and uh, just fascinating, man. I, I Someday I got to get over to Ohio and knock on your door and see some of that equipment. Uh, just the idea, I mean, of being able to to do some of the things that you can do. And that's uh, just awesome. <laughs> uh, you, you, you know, it's it's a dying art. And, and really, I don't know anyone else in the industry that's that's in it to the level that you're into it. Um well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. That's a nice compliment. You'd always be welcome. Uh, so yeah, so it's uh, you're right. It is a dying art, and uh, and there's no reason why it needs to be. Yeah. So uh, Amen. You know, this is a doable thing by most people. Um, yeah. It, it, and the equipment, amazingly, 
is antique. It's all cast iron, but a lot of it I'm seeing come up on the marketplace for free because it's heavy. Mm-hmm. And so people, bookbinders are dying and their kids are like, what are we going to do with this? And they just like, come, please, someone take <laughs> it and do something. And so, um, so if you're interested in this kind of stuff, um, I'm probably, probably next year, I'm going to start a workshop. I don't know if it'll be a Gen Con or Gary Con or whatever, where I talk about how you make something by hand and, and, and what it is like. And, you know, the idea is for a small group of people to come to a seminar or a workshop and say, I have this product and we could sit down and actually think it out. Okay. So what does it really cost to have someone else make it for you? What does it cost to have you make it yourself? What are the steps that have to be involved? How would you learn those skills and what equipment would you need to own? And, um, and so it's kind of a brainstorming session for third-party creators is I think what I'm envisioning. And um, so that, you know, so that other people can learn this too. So there are a couple other people who are doing um, some of their own printing, but uh, I don't know anybody who's hand-making, binding, you know, and doing the, yeah. yeah, bindings Cuts. and stuff like that. So that's a, that's definitely a, a different thing. So, yeah, but not a problem. All right, man. It's been super cool for those of you out there again, Check that Kickstarter out. Uh, you don't have a lot of time. I kind of got got in late and getting this interview together, but um, but get on there and check that out. And uh, you know, thank you for joining us tonight. And we'll catch you again soon on this old dungeon. You have been listening to this old dungeon, a podcast about reviewing and renovating great adventures and rule sets from throughout the annals of gaming. The views expressed by the hosts are simply that, and shouldn't be taken with any serious amount of gravity. This program is copyright 2023. Happy gaming!